Hey everyone, it's Jeff. I just wanted to let you know before we get started that we're doing something a little different for our fifth Friday Fable Fest this month. We are going to try to hear from some of you. We will be posting a few fables on our Facebook page that we'll want you to respond to, and we'll pick some of our favorite responses that come from that thread and read them during the podcast so we can give you all a chance to participate in the discussion because we just love hearing from you. So tune in next week, July 20th through 25th on our Facebook page to see that post and join the conversation. All right, until then, enjoy this extra long episode. Once upon a time. In a land far away. I'm Katrina. And I'm Jeff. And welcome to the Fairy Tellers Podcast. Myth, legend, folklore, fable. We explore what they say about cultures then and now. Grab a hot cup of cocoa and a comfy seat while we retell you a thing. It's the episode you've all been waiting for. (laughs) The Beauty and the Beast episode. Which I was thinking about it today. I was like, we started teasing this back in February for (laughs) Valentine's Day that I was like, oh, yeah, we'll do something that's related to Valentine's Day in February. And I was like, oh, Beauty and the Beast is a good one because it's a love story. And then I was like, well, but I can't. And then it all it was. It's all been downhill from there, guys. Yeah, it was hilarious. Every single time we're like, okay, but before we do that, we actually need to cover this story and we'll do Beauty and the Beast next time. And then we covered that and you're like, actually, in order to do Beauty and the Beast like proper justice, we need to do this story and this story first. I was like, Like, okay. Like, okay, we have to make sure everybody gets like background. So if this is the first episode of the Fairy Tellers podcast that you are tuning in for, you have to stop. You have to pause. This is probably the only episode that it's necessary to go back and listen to some of the ones that we've done before. So listen to episode 14 for sure. That one is a like, do not skip. Uh, Cupid and Psyche, East of the Sun, West of the Moon. Episode 14 has both those stories. And then if you want kind of the full experience, episode 19 is Animal Brides. And then there's episode 24, which is Bluebeard and the Fitcher's Bird. And that'll kind of help you with understanding full context for what we're going to be talking about today. Because my whole reason for dragging out the Beauty and the Beast episode for so long was to provide like history and context when we were discussing Beauty and the Beast so that people can really get an idea of like how this story came into existence the way that it is. Yeah. And those episodes are some of my favorite ones. Like especially episode 14 is probably one of my all time favorites of our podcast too. So just good listening, no matter what, if you haven't heard already, do it. Um, (laughs) so I just want to say also as a warning to people, this is definitely not going to be the final episode or word on animal grooms, animal brides, complicated love matches, or dealing with the anxiety of marriage. Those themes are going to just keep popping up (laughs) in like more episodes. 
And so it is good that we've laid like a very firm like base of knowledge for people in this area. For sure. So quick recap before we get into the stories that we have today, which are are going to, it is going to include Beauty and the Beast. Yes. We promise we're not faking you out this time. <laughs> <laughs> so we started off with Cupid and Psyche. It's a second century story that was included in a group of stories inside of a Latin book called The Golden Ass. I think we actually mentioned that book in a Fable Fest episode also when we were talking about like stories of like Greek gods, like the kind of like fun side stories that are like available. But Mm -hmm. anyway, we talked about how that book started to circulate around Europe in 1469. It was translated from the Latin and started circulating around Europe in 1469. That's important for everyone to remember is why I said it twice. Um, So there it started to break off into like the different countries and it started to take on kind of the different flavors of the areas that it was located. And so one of the closest to the plot of Cupid and Psyche is the Norwegian tale East of the Sun, West of the Moon, which is why we told those two stories together. And it was also fun because that episode, then we had a listener reach out and that led us on this trip towards textile magic in another episode, which I I think it's awesome when we get to like break off and be like, now let's do a weird side trip. Yeah, totally. (laughs) So in East of the Sun, West of the Moon, you had like the story of Cupid and Psyche, but it had a Norwegian Norse flavor to it. We've had like trolls and these like textile imagery talking about fate. The dude that she ended up marrying was a bear. Yeah, a white bear. Which is relevant to what we're going to be talking about today. Yes, exactly. Who's a beast Uh, of sorts. (laughs) (laughs) Imagine. So we had those stories. And I just want people to know, in our Cinderella episode and our Sleeping Beauty episode, we went through kind of the three main European sources for variations on stories and those exist in like the like group of tales that are beautiful woman marrying like an ugly husband beast animal creature and we're not going to be covering those stories at least not right now because we could be doing beauty and the beast stories that we could do like a whole podcast like spin-off podcast that's just all beauty and the beast stories but i want people to know about them so, Jean Battiste Basile, he had the serpent, the padlock, uh, Pinto Smalto. These are those are three different stories, and then there is one that has some racist racial connotations that, like, I'm kind of tempted to like look into, called the Golden Root, and in that one, the husband is black during the day. And then white at night. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so very racist. (laughs) Yeah. So I want to see because I don't I haven't read it. And so I don't know how that's presented. Yeah. But from 
reading just that description on it, I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds like it's pretty racist. Um, and then Charles Perrault had requit a la hoop, I think is how you pronounce that. <laughs> I don't know. Requit, requit, requi, if they don't say the T because it's French, I don't know. Anyway. And then the Grimm's brothers have the singing, springing lark and Hans, my hedgehog. And we've briefly talked about Hans, Hans, (laughs) my hedgehog back in the, oh, what episode did we mention that in? Probably, I think it was Animal Brides. Probably. I mentioned it because somebody else had been like, oh, the story of East of the Sun, West of the Moon kind of reminds me of Hans my Hedgehog. And I was like, yes, you are right. You are 100% (laughs) correct to think that. And so instead of focusing on those like three sources that we've used for Cinderella and Sleeping Beauty, we wanted to, for Beauty and the Beast, be exploring kind of other areas of the world. And today, before we tell you Beauty and the Beast, which I promise we will tell you Beauty (laughs) and the Beast... (laughs) I wanted to tell you a story that comes from India. So there is a book from India called the Pantra Tantra, which is Sanskrit for the five books. And this set of stories, it's a framed narrative, and scholars believe it was written somewhere between the first and the sixth century. And it was translated and started to circulate in areas of Europe in 1480. Uh, which is why I repeated the <laughs> date. 1469 twice. Yes. The story of Cupid and Psyche was circulating around the same area in Europe at the same time that the Pantra Tantra was translated and circulating around Europe. And so when I tell you this story that's called The Girl Who Married a Snake, you are going to be able to see how the elements from Cupid and Psyche like whacked into the details from the girl who married a snake. (laughs) And the stories that we know today, they either derived from these two places or became contaminated by these two stories to create what we have today. So really quickly, this is not going to be the only episode where we mention the Pantra Tantra because it's going to come up a lot. Really quickly, the information that you need to know is that this is a Sanskrit framed narrative, a lot like A Thousand and One Nights, the way that the stories kind of lead into each other. And you kind of, you go into a story deep and then you get pulled back out. And so it's kind of, it's a framed narrative in that kind of same same way. Interesting. And It is part of a literary genre from the Middle Ages that's called Mirror of Princes. And it means that the stories were aimed specifically at teaching wisdom to rulers and leaders. And Hmm. that's a lot of just very loose information that I'm like telling you for a really like tight area of studies. Like there are people who have devoted like years of their lives to studying like all the nitty gritty details of like what I just told you in like three sentences. (laughs) And now you don't have to because you know everything. No, (laughs) no, (laughs) it's like I just want people to know it's like it's uh, the Pantra Tantra 
there's a lot there, a lot of like information and scholarship and stuff. And so like what I just told you is just very loose general information. (laughs) (laughs) So the story is called The Girl Who Married a Snake. And because it's inside of this frame narrative, I have to back up to the story that goes right before it because it leads into it. Mm, So there's a story called the monk who left his body behind. Oh, and at the, at the end of the story, he is like looking like he's dead. And they're talking about how like the lifeless body is just like a cell that's holding like the soul inside. But then when you like burn it up, you can release the soul from the lifeless body. And it's, it's a couple people having a conversation like with a king, but then one of them says, when this lifeless body has been burned, the gentleman may stand before the king and that other body, which visits heaven in this connection, I will tell you the story of the girl who married a snake. And you'll see how it ties into like that ending. (laughs) As like in these frame narrative where they're like, like, and here's the lead in for the story, but you have to read the lead in to know why they told the story to fully understand then like the message of the story. Right. It's going to be all very circular. Yeah. And then there's like another mini story that then is inside of the story. I'm about to tell you before then they pull back out to being in the back in that place with the the monk and the king all have a conversation <laughs> which is not neither here nor there but i just wanted you to know like the what the lead into this story yeah. it's so complex <laughs> that christopher nolan's probably going to base his next movie around the <laughs> narratives within narratives yeah it's like this inception story like <laughs> and back out so anyway in the palace city there lived a brahmin named godly which Again, I'm reading a translation of this. It's not originally in English. It was originally in Sanskrit. (laughs) So I don't know necessarily the um, connotations behind the name godly. But anyway, he had a childless wife who would cry all the time when she would look out and see all the neighbor's kids playing outside. And she had no child. Which, as a person who had problems like having kids, I'm always really sensitive when I see this uh, trope come yeah. up in stories a lot. Where and I'm it like, comes up all the time, too. It does. Where it's like, oh, childless woman. Like, she's really sad because she, like, wants this thing. So the Brahmin said, I want you to just have faith that you are going to have a child because I was just giving an offering that you would be able to have a baby. And so you just need to have faith that it will happen because I heard as I was giving alms, Brahman, you shall have a son surpassing all in beauty, character, and charm. And he believed that. And so he wanted his wife to believe it as well. So she felt the truth of what she was saying and she ceased to sorrow. And soon she became pregnant. Yay. Yay. (laughs) But when she gave birth, She gave birth to a snake. Oh, gosh. Oh, man. No. (laughs) (laughs) That was her husband's reaction as well. (laughs) Um, And also, like, all of her attendants. But she was like, no, this is my baby. 
my baby is perfect and beautiful and wonderful, oh, and gosh. I love this baby. And so she would tenderly care for him. She it said she had a, a large, clean box for him to be in, <laughs> which, again, I'm getting a translation, but it is funny to be. I'm like, oh, she's like, oh, I have a crate that I can, like, put this guy. <laughs> but- <laughs> Poke some holes in the top so the air gets in, throw a rat in there every now and again. Yeah. But it said that she fed him on milk, fresh butter, and other good things. (laughs) And soon enough, he had grown into full maturity, which I'm like, how big of a snake is that? I don't know. 16 feet. Yeah, probably. (laughs) No, (laughs) who knows? But anyway, so mom fully loves this kid, fully invested in her snake son. So... One day, the Brahmin's wife was sitting and she was watching a marriage festival for one of those neighbor's kids that she had always, you know, been sitting at the window watching, wishing that she had like a kid. Uh And now the neighbor's kid was getting married and she started to cry. And I love that it doesn't say that she like, like, oh, she knew that her kid would probably always be like alone. Because that's what (laughs) I at first I was like, oh, she's like realizing. No one's going to want to marry my snake son. Yeah, but no, instead, she totally, like, went to her husband and she was like, why don't you love me enough to find a wife for, like, my son? (laughs) She, like, obviously, like, putting it on her husband, like, not that, like, their kid is a snake, but she's like, why aren't you trying hard enough to, like, find someone to marry our son? Like, what's your problem? And I love, he has, like, a really, like, snide reply where he's just like, wife. Am I going to the depths of the underworld to beseech Vasuki, the serpent king, for a wife? Which I was like, oh, that's like an insider reference. So it's uh, in Hindu or Buddhist religions. He's a protector of the Buddha and also worshippers of the Buddha. Uh-huh. And so, like, he does have, like, good connotations. I know, like, well, for me, like, in my brain, whenever I hear about, like, the underworld. Yeah, it's like, or, it has yeah, kind of, snakes. like, evil kind of connotations, like the yeah. devil or, like, Hades or. Yeah, because it's, like, that that uh, kind of Christian influence that, like, you know, creeps in. And so you're, like, oh, underworld. And you think, like, oh, the depths of hell or whatever. And it's, like, no, no, no. It's, like, it was a good reference. And it was hilarious because he is a serpent king. And <laughs> so it was pretty funny to be, like. Like, who else would I ask for, like, a wife for my serpent son? So he's all about the jokes, this guy. (laughs) Godly. (laughs) Oh, godly. For his godly sense of humor. (laughs) But um, so he was upset that he saw that his words had upset his wife so much. He felt badly that he'd upset his wife. So he packed up provisions for a long journey And he undertook this long journey to see if he could find somebody for his snake son to have for a wife. So as he was traveling around, he came to the house of a kinsman. So one of his like relatives, one of his, his people. And he was like, Oh, would I be able to stay with you tonight? And of course this relation was like, I would love that. I haven't seen you in so long. You should definitely like come in, let me feed you, like take a bath, rest from like your travels, like have a good time here. So they had a really fun time. And when the Brahmin got up the next morning, his, his relative was like, Hey, so we didn't talk about this last night, but 
why are you traveling around? Like, what are you, what, what errand are you on? And he was like, well, I've been searching around trying to find somebody like fit to marry my son, which I think that's interesting that he's like, I'm trying to find a woman that's fit for my son, which <laughs> makes it sound like he's trying to find like a woman worthy of, <laughs> it's like, which he's like, uh, trying to find a good match, you know, for my kid. And his uh, kinsman was like, well, in that case, I have a very beautiful daughter. And, you know, I would love to strengthen the ties between our two families. And so you should definitely have my daughter go with you and marry your son. That'd be perfect. In some of the retellings, the Brahmin is like really upfront about that. He's like, no, no, no. Yeah. By the way, my son's like a snake. Yeah, he's like, no, 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 my my son is a snake. I just, you need to know that up front. You shouldn't subject your daughter to that. But in this version, he's like, oh, that's very kind of you. <laughs> and he takes the girl with him. So when the people of his, like, home country, when he gets back to, like, his city, the people there, they see this woman, like, coming in who's going to be the bride, and they see that she's just opulently beautiful. It says she had superhuman graces and loveliness. And they were kind of like, what? (laughs) This gorgeous lady (laughs) is going to be marrying. And so they kind of started whispering to each other, like, like, how can somebody think that this beautiful pearl of a woman should be married to that snake? Some of her relatives who had come with her traveling heard them talking and they were like, oh, whoa, wait, what? <laughs> That's not right. And they turned to her, her and they were like, uh, apparently this guy is, there's something not right. They said he's a snake. And maybe like you shouldn't like do this. And the girl like completely like shut them down. And she was like, no, we must remember the texts. And then she kind of repeats some like holy texts, which I think are really good. Um, It says, do once, once only these three things. Once spoken stands the word of kings. The speech of saints has no miscarriage. A maid is given once in marriage. And so she's basically just like, nope. The word has been spoken. My father has said that, like, I'm supposed to be married to this person. So once he speaks it, it is what we are supposed to do. Oh, wow. And, and then once a maid, and a maid is given once in marriage, like, this is it. This is my shot. And then she says, all fated happenings derive from any former state. Much changeless stands the very God's enduring poor blossom's fate. And then they say, who's poor Blossom? And now we have like that other layer of like story slipping in. And it basically is a story about a parrot named Blossom who (laughs) was, I'm like, this is just a quick rundown about this parrot. A Pixar movie. (laughs) Yeah. This parrot named Blossom, he's trying to escape death. And death is like personified, but death is like, I don't know why you're trying to like escape me because like what will happen will happen. And so they do all these things to try to like make it so that the bird like lives forever. But then like the bird dies and everyone's like, death, did you do this? And he's like, no, I didn't do this because whatever is fated to happen will happen. Mm. And that's what happened to the bird is like it died. And so what this woman is saying is, Whatever happens is going to happen to me 
just like was faded from the beginning, just like with poor Blossom. So then it's like, okay, now pull back out of that story and we're back, we're back to, is the wedding going to happen or not? So she said, I don't want my, my father to get reproached and be called like a double dealer because he had promised me to somebody. And then I like backed out and she's like, it's fine. I'm going to marry the snake. And so the wedding happened and immediately she was a very devoted wife to the snake and was, you know, offering him milk to drink and cleaning him and doing like whatever snake things he needed. Yeah. So that night, and he was always sleeping in like a large chest, like a, uh, like a trunk, mm-hmm. like a beautiful ornate box, <laughs> like at the beginning. So he's in this beautiful ornate trunk and she's in bed. And in the middle of the night, she feels a man like climb into the bed next to her. And she was like, whoa, not okay. And she starts to run to the door yelling out because... Uh, a strange dude climbed in her bed yeah. and she's like, not okay. And she heard the guy in the bed be like, no, 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 no. Like, I'm your husband. I'm your husband. Like, it's fine. We're, this is totally allowed. This is okay. <laughs> and she was like, you are definitely not my husband. And he's like, no, watch. And he climbed back into the chest and like peeked his head up and it was like the snake. And he was like, see, no, like it's totally cool. <laughs> like, we're fine. And then he like slithered back out of his skin, climbed back up onto the bed as like a man. Well, all of the yelling that had happened had woken up the Brahmin and he ran in and he saw that there was the snake skin lying empty on the floor. And then the guy in the bed and he quickly grabbed the skin and he threw it into the fire Uh and it burned up and not, uh Oh, it's fine. Okay, good. So he threw it into the fire and it burnt up and the son says, thank you so much for doing that. There was a curse on me that I would always be bound to that skin unless somebody without being asked burnt it up. And that's only in some versions of the story that there's that explanation of like why that happened. Yes. And the two of them had a happy union forevermore. Oh, nice. But why that, why I had to give you this like lead into this story was because they was talking about like, oh, if you burn up the body, then like the spirit, right, the spirit like, goes free. Yeah. Like goes free. And then they that's interesting. So people who, again, if you know the story of Hans, my hedgehog by the brothers Grimm, That has a kind of similar story up until the point when the hedgehog skin gets burned. Because once the hedgehog skin gets burned, the hedgehog then like is cursed to leave. He's like in a regular body, he's cursed to leave. And then the maiden who was married to him has to go on this long, long journey to like get him back. And so it becomes a in search of a lost husband story instead of this one. And so that one, it's really clear how, like, Hans, my hedgehog is related to this story. For sure. But then also how it's connected to, like, Cupid and Psyche. Yeah. I'm trying to remember, too, because it was, like, the, I think the reason why, because I haven't actually read Hans, my hedgehog or heard Hans, my hedgehog. But in the frog princess, the Russian story, wasn't, they burned her frog skin and didn't something bad happen when they burned her frog skin in that, too? 
Yes, exactly. They burnt her frog skin and she was like, no, if you'd only waited, then I, the curse would have been broken or whatever. But now I have to go to. Uh, oh, Cache the Deathless. Yeah. Cache the Deathless. And then he had to go on this like long journey yeah, to which save. Which is like the reverse, like a search of a lost, lost wife, wife rather yeah. than lost husband. And that one was in our Animal Brides episode, if people yeah. want to like listen to that one. Or why I told people at the beginning, like, you're going to want to. <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna want to go yeah, back. Yeah, that's so crazy. You can really tell how how all these stories are relating and like branching off and like influencing one another. Yeah, and it's so interesting. Like the way that that they differ from each other is always in like kind of country specific ways or yeah. audience specific ways because it's like Cache the Deathless and like Ivan. Those are country specific characters yeah and and even you said oh and vasilisa was like the name of like the princess who was like turned into a frog and so it's like those country specific things or like east of the sun west of the moon it's like trolls like it's it's always this kind of like country specific little changes and so it's it becomes so clear to see how like culture and where a story is being talked about and like in what space of time is being talked about can give us insight into what was going on in the area and like the minds of the people at the time. Yeah. And even that detail of the skin being burned and that being a good thing when it was like, even me, like just having these other stories kind of in my brain was immediately like, "Uh Oh, this is not going to turn out well, but it is a good thing because like you said, in that beginning story that leads into it, it's kind of talking about like the theology of, you know, like the burning of the body to release the soul and all that. It's like, that is a good thing that's necessary because that's just something that's trapping the true, you know, soul within. So it's very related to that culture. Yeah. And then also like the fact that it was like, like a snake, which even though it's not like attractive to them, it's also not like a completely horrible creature. Like it's a creature that has like, good connotations as opposed as opposed to just being repulsive yeah like when you have a serpent king that is like a protector of the buddha and the believers you know it's like you could see snakes as something good rather than you know in a western sense where the snake is like the devil or yeah instead it has this kind of like while not a romantic connotation like they're not like oh we're so into snakes like (laughs) no but they don't have like that negative connotation either so now the people know this story which again it is like from scholars believe somewhere between the first and sixth century when it was like uh, created and written down and we have the the golden ass with the cupid and psyche story that was written in like the second century. And mm-hmm. both of those showed up in the like kind of late 1400s and mixed together in Europe. Now we are finally ready, people. I finally deemed you ready <laughs> and educated enough. <laughs> no, I'm excited to have people listen to The Beauty and the Beast with way too much context. <laughs> I'm like, forget all that romantic stuff. I'm like, now we're going to get into the, the intertextual complexities. <laughs> also, just enjoy it as a story because 
there's enough in this version of the story that's different that it is just like kind of interesting to like look at and talk about. Yeah, if your only knowledge of it, like me, is from the Disney movie, you'll both be able to see, oh, that's where this thing in the movie comes from. But also you'll see enough that's different that you're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting how this difference. Like you can definitely see the core that they took from, but you can also see a lot of the differences, even in this text that was the inspiration for the movie. So without... Nope, a little bit of further ado. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, so the version that Jeff is going to be reading, it is by... Madame Jeanne-Marie Le Prince de Beaumont. And she took a story and shortened it, uh, condensed it for a children's publication. And when she took that and did that, she was doing it to aim the story at a very specific audience because the story as she saw it and shortened it. She took the story from a novel by Madame de Villeneuve, which I'm in the re- middle of reading. I wanted to have it finished, but twas not to be. <laughs> but it's really interesting because there's probably parts where I'll pause while Jeff's talking to interject where some of the these like otter elements pop up in the novel. But if people want to read a translation of the novel, there is one available on Kindle that is $1.99. Nice. (laughs) And so if you're interested in reading it, I would say go for it because it is really interesting. If you're a person who likes to read the kind of modern adaptations of like fairy tales, this one might be a fun one for you, even though it's not a modern (laughs) readaptation. This version it's from 1740 and yeah it's really good and interesting and if people like source material this is a really like fun relatively quick one to read cool i guess i'll finally let jeff tell the story of the beauty if, of the beast if you want to hear the beauty story of the beauty is turn tune in next week when <laughs> i finally read it for the next episode <laughs> How cruel would that be? That would be so mean when we're like, part two. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So finally, this is Beauty and the Beast. We've just received a cease and desist letter from Disney. (laughs) So there once was a very rich merchant who had six children, three sons and three daughters. So right off the bat, very different. Rich merchant, not super poor, crazy old Maurice, who is an inventor. And what's crazy, sorry, I'm already going to stop you. (laughs) One sentence in. In the novel, it's 12 kids. Oh my gosh. Yeah, when I was reading my kids the story, because they wanted me to read it out loud to them. They were like, wait, what? Just right off the bat, immediately, they were (laughs) like, Belle has brothers and sisters? And I was like, yeah, it's a whole thing. What is this blasphemy? (laughs) But so this guy was very rich, um, but he was also like, you know, they say he was a man of sense. So he like spared no expense to have his children be well educated. He brought in all sorts of masters to teach them all these things. And his daughters were just super gorgeous. Like everyone knew how gorgeous their this guy's daughters were, but especially the youngest. She was like the most beautiful of them all. Like the 
the bell, the of, bell the of the ball. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh man, there, there we go. And so much so that when she was little, everyone in the town like just admired her, and they used to call her the little beauty. And even as she grew up, that like nickname kind of stuck. So everyone just called her beauty. So much so that we never learn what her actual name is. She just goes by beauty throughout the whole story. So not only was beauty much now better looking. Now it's no wonder that her name means beauty. <laughs> Cease and desist letter number two. <laughs> not only was she more beautiful than her sisters, who were also go- like absolutely gorgeous, but she had many more admirable qualities than they did. The two older ones were very prideful because of their wealth. So they gave themselves, you know, to like, kind of like speaking in airs and like they just kind of thought that they were better than everyone. They wouldn't hang out with the other merchants' daughters. You know, they would only hang out with people they considered to be people of quality. And they went to, you know, go out to like parties and balls and concerts and everything. And they were always laughing at their younger sister, Beauty, uh, because she spent most of her time at home just reading books. And it was really well known that they had a lot of money. So lots of the other merchant's sons would come and they would try to like date these two do- older daughters. And they were like, no, unless you're like a duke or an earl, at least. <laughs> we're not going to give you the time of day. You have but- to be this rich. To- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They had they had standards. OK, unlike beauty, because beauty, whenever they came around to court the daughters, she would court them. But then she'd be like, you know, I'm too young to get married now, and I want to stay with my dad for a few years longer. But then, all at once, the merchant lost his fortune. Doesn't say why in this. Maybe in the book it does. But all of a sudden, just boom, his fortune's gone. Yeah, in the book, it talks about, like, there is a big fire in, like, his store, warehouse, home, and, like, all of the banknotes that he had had, like, burnt up. Pirates took all of his ships. Oh, man. Like, just, like, it basically was just, like, a really bad, like, run of luck. Anything bad that could happen to your wares happened. But the only thing that was spared of the things that they owned was a small country house that was, like, really far away from town. And so he told his children, they had tears in their eyes, of course, that they're got to go there and they're going to have to work to make a living. Which I'm like, this is sounding a lot like Shit's Creek all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Canadian TV show is like, that's where the inspiration came from. It's a rich family that uh, suddenly loses all their wealth. The only thing they own is like something in the middle of the country, nowhere. So the two eldest were like, no, we're not going to leave the town. So they, they're like, we have some lovers here in town and we're sure that they'll be happy to marry us even if we're not rich. But they were wrong. <laughs> these, <people's, laughs> these people were like, uh, you're poor. We don't want anything to do with you. So these girls were getting a taste of their own medicine. (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, like everyone in town was like, we don't feel bad for these people at all. They were so rich. They deserve to be out there milking cows and working for their money to bring them down a few notches. So I'm not sure if they were talking about just the sisters or the whole family. It seems like they were really talking about mostly those sisters. Yeah, the story does a whole lot to make sure that you know that, like, Beauty's the only good woman. And every other woman is horrible. But the brothers are also, like, doting on Belle because she's so wonderful. Belle is the French word for beauty. And since this story was French, that's why they that's why her name's Belle. 
But yeah, they make sure to, that you know that like, oh, the brothers were really, really hard working and also thought Belle was wonderful and their sis- that their other sisters were garbage. Yeah, it doesn't talk so much about the brothers, but you do get kind of the sense that they're kind of good guys. But anyway, even though the people in town were like so happy to kind of see this happen to the sisters, they felt really bad and concerned for Belle because she was, you know, a list of every good adjective that you could have. She was charming. She was sweet tempered. She spoke kindly to poor people. She was affable. She was easy to get along with, easy to talk to. And when they were going to leave town, there were several gentlemen that were like, we'd be happy to marry Belle, you know, and keep her from having to go out and live penniless in the country with the rest of her family. But she was like, no, I can't leave my dad. You know, he's going through a really hard time. Like, I want to be with him so that I can comfort him and care for him because, of course, she's just the absolute perfect person. Yeah, I love how all these guys, they're like, oh, now's the perfect chance because, like, now she's sure to, like, want to marry me. So they're, like, leveraging their wealth to be like, hey, you don't have to be poor. You could finally say yes to marrying me. And she's like, no. Gaston (laughs) has entered the chat. (laughs) And, you know... Bell was also very sad about the loss of this fortune, you know, as like as anyone would be, but she didn't cry. And she's like, you know what? If I cry, it's not going to make anything better. I just have to find a way to be happy even without a fortune. So they get to this country house, the merchant and his sons just start applying themselves to the work of the farm. And, you know, even Bell beauty got up, she got up early and she was doing all the stuff around the house, making sure to clean it and dinner was ready. And she thought it was like really difficult at first and she was not having a good time of it. But as time went on, you know, she grew stronger and got used to it. And she's like healthier than she'd ever been because of all the, you know, manual labor that she had been doing. And when she was done with her work, she would read, she would play the harpsichord or sing while she spun. It was like... It's not a fairy tale story unless there's some textiles involved. <laughs> but her sisters did not know what to do. So it talked about how Beauty got up at four in the morning. It says her sisters got up at 10 and they did nothing the whole day except saunter around, lamenting the loss of their clothes and their acquaintances. And they like looked at Beauty and they're like, Ugh, look at our younger sister. She's like so poor. She's just so stupid and mean spirited that she's find being happy in this like unhappy and dismal situation. So they were like holding it against Belle that she was finding a way to be happy. Yeah. That they were like, Oh, she must be like so dumb that she's like enjoying this. And it's like, (laughs) actually intelligent people can uh, bring their intelligence everywhere they go and enjoy life. Yeah. She's adaptable. That's wisdom. That's wisdom being flexible to your situation. So, the merchant, though, was he was at a very different opinion. He knew well that not only was, you know, beauty much more beautiful than her sisters, but as a person in her mind, she spent her time reading books. So she was very smart. She was humble, industrious. Like she was just far and away like the ideal person that you could be. But because of that, her sisters kind of took advantage of it and they left beauty all the housework to do and just constantly insulted her. And so this went on for about a year. And after a year in this situation, they got some really good news. The father got a letter saying that one of their ships that had some merchandise on it had arrived safely. And so they were super excited and they're like, oh my gosh, we might be able to afford to return to town, go back to our old life, you know, 
as even though they're making it work in the country, they were kind of getting tired of it because it was really hard work. And so when their dad set out to go and take care of this business, the older daughters like begged the fathers like, oh, please buy us some new gowns and headdresses and jewels and all sorts of things. And, you know, Beauty didn't ask for anything that she really wanted for herself. She thought, you know, the money that dad's going to get is going to be enough to get what my sisters want and he'll be able to take care of other things. And her father was like, hey, you know, what do you want me to get? And she's like, oh, well, since you're wanting to do something, think of me, I just would like for you to bring me a rose. Because, you know, there are no roses that grow out here. It would just be something nice to have this beautiful rose that I could see. And the sisters took this as a big insult. She's like, oh, she thinks she's better than us. She had to do something different. Ask for, like, a rose instead of normal things like flowers and all these material goods. And they use that as another excuse to be mean and insult their sister. Like, no matter what she had chosen to do, they would have, like, been upset with her anyway. In In the novel, she just said to her dad, like, just come back. I just want you to be healthy. And then the sisters were like, like, oh... She's trying to make us look bad by making us feel guilty because we said we wanted dresses and things. And she's just trying to, like, act like she's so much better than us. And so yeah. the dad was like, okay, beauty, just <laughs> just tell me a thing <laughs> just so that your sisters will, like, cool it. And then she was like, okay, then, like, pick me a rose. Because when he left, it was, like, in the middle of summertime. And so uh-huh. it would have been an easy ask. Yeah. And then they still were like, oh, I want if, a rose. And if she had asked, like, oh, just get me the same things that they're getting or, like, ask for clothes or whatever, they'd be like, oh, she's just copying us. Why is she yeah. have to? Or they would have been like, oh, see, she's just as obsessed with, like, money and goods as we are, but she yeah, acts she's like no she's so much better. Yeah, so it was like, no matter what, they were going to complain. Yeah, because they were, as it said earlier, they were very jealous of how much more beautiful she was than them. So the merchant... Went on his journey, but when he got there, things didn't really work out. Doesn't say what happened, but the deal didn't really work out. I think maybe, I, I don't know. Yeah, I'm like, do you want me to tell you what happened Yeah, in the please novel? do. <laughs> I was like, you just told me something, so I feel like maybe we should not. But I was like, but I kind of want to know what happened that made it go through, because it does not say. Yeah, so it basically was like, because they'd been out in the country for like two years, by the time he finally got to the port... The people who had been the people that he had worked with, they thought that he was dead. So, like, when his boat showed up, they were like, oh, this guy's gone. And so they sold off all of his stuff for, like, kind of just super cheap, low-bottom prices just so that they had some money. And then he had to, like, sue them to get some of that money because they were like, well, the money's already gone. He's like, but it was rightfully mine. So then he had to pay lawyers. So, like, by the time it all, like, wound up, it had been six months. It was the middle of winter. And he had basically nothing because he had spent all, they had gotten such low prices. Then he had had to pay lawyers to even fight them for that. So it ended up being a wash, but now it's winter time and he's headed back. Yeah. Which makes sense because it actually does say, you know, he was started to head home just as poor as before. And when he was 30 miles within his own house, he was thinking about seeing his family again and how happy that would make him. Probably also thinking a little bit of how disappointed they might be to hear what had happened. But he started into a large forest and got lost because it was raining and snowing terribly. And there was like super high wind that was so strong that it actually like blew him off his horse twice. No, not twice. Thrice during the night. (laughs) 
And so he was like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to end up either freezing to death out here or just getting so lost that I starve to death, or I'm going to get eaten by these wolves that I hear howling all around. And suddenly, as he's thinking these horrible things are about to happen to him, he sees a light very, very small in the distance. And he's like, oh my gosh, yes, salvation. So he starts going towards it. So as he gets closer, he sees that this light is actually a palace that's like just fully illuminated from top to bottom. And he is so happy that he gets there as fast as he can. And he's really surprised when he gets to the kind of the outer walls that there's no one there to greet him. So he goes with his horse. He sees a large stable open. So he puts his horse in the stable and there's like plenty of hay and oats and all that thing. And so his horse, who's also starving, starts eating as much as he can. And the merchant ties him up in there and starts walking towards the house. And he sees no one else like at all on the grounds, which he thinks is a little weird. And he walks into the house and into a large hall. And he's kind of calling like, hey, hello, but nobody answers. So he walks into the house and he sees a fire and there's like a table set there. So he's like, okay, I'll just kind of come in and get out from the the cold rain and the snow and get to the fire to dry myself off, warm up. And then hopefully, you know, the master of the house will come along and they'll excuse me for kind of just taking this liberty because I I tried to call for them, but, but they would not come. So hopefully they forgive me. And so he's kind of waiting and it gets late and he's like, it says the clock struck 11 and still nobody came. He's like, okay, I'm freaking hungry. There's a table that's completely laid out with food here. So he took like a whole chicken and it says it ate it. He ate it in two mouthfuls. Which you hope is hyperbole. (laughs) Yeah, because I was like, (laughs) just ate the whole thing. He drank a few glasses of wine and growing more courageous, probably due to the wine that he drank. (laughs) He starts wandering around the palace and he sees like just magnificent furniture everywhere and he comes into a chamber and he's like oh there's a bed in here and he's like i'm pretty tired from this really long journey i'm pretty drunk from all the wine that i ate and i just filled my belly with a whole chicken i'm exhausted so he closed the door and went to bed like then, so many goldilockses <laughs> yeah. and so he sleeps in until 10 the next morning much like the the sisters <laughs> always sleeping in until 10 So the merchant wakes up the next morning. It's like about 10 o'clock. So we got a good 10 hours of sleep, which he deserved. It was a very long journey. Yeah. I mean, we don't know how long he was wandering around inside the palace either. So I'm like, you know, maybe because it it was 11 by the time he ate. So I don't know. Maybe he got a good eight hours. Yeah, that's true. It said it was was past midnight. It didn't say it was minutes. It was past midnight when he went and, and went to bed. So. When he got up, though, he was astonished to see this, like, really fine set of clothes set out in the room for him. And he's like, well, mine are, like, an absolute mess because I got thrown from my horse three times. And so they're soaking and dirty and, like, all turn up. And he's like, you know what? Oh, my gosh. This palace must be the palace of, like, some kind fairy who saw me in my distress and is now, like, looking after me. And even when he looked out the window, he saw, instead of snow like he had seen when he came in, just like beautiful trees and like beautiful flowers everywhere. And he was like, whoa, this place really is magical. So he returned to the great hall where he'd eaten the night before and he found like some chocolate on the table. And he's like, oh, thank you, good Madam Fairy. And he starts drinking and he's like, oh, thank you for being willing to provide me this breakfast. I'm so obliged to you in all your favors. And so he drank his hot chocolate and then he went back to look for his horse. But then as he was going back out, in this like enchanted garden that's not winter compared to the winter he rode into, he sees an arbor of roses, just these roses growing on this beautiful like trellis thing. And he remembered that his daughter, Beauty, wanted him to bring a rose. So he like clips off a little branch that has several 
And as soon as he does it, he hears this like crazy loud noise and this beast uh, comes out of nowhere, like running towards him. And he's like so scared that he's about to faint. And the beast is like, you are so ungrateful. It's like, I saved your life by receiving you into this castle. And what do you do? You steal my roses. And, uh, and apparently like the beast is like, values these roses he says i value them beyond anything in the universe he's like but you're gonna die for it i'll give you half an hour to prepare so you better start saying your prayers and so the merchant's like oh my gosh so he he like gets on his knees he's like i'm sorry my lord like please forgive me i didn't mean to offend you i was just getting roses for my daughters which one thing that i think is interesting about the like he's like i'm gonna kill you immediately but i'm gonna give you like a space of time for your prayers is we also saw that in bluebeard when he was oh, like, yeah, that's right. like, oh, you lied to me. I'm going to give you this much space of time to like get good with your God before I like kill you. Yeah. Which it's interesting that it's like, we give you this chunk of time. Not a minute more. Yep. And it's exactly a quarter of an hour. Like that's at 15 minutes. It's apparently very important. That's the time that you get for prayers. If your, if your prayers go longer than 15 minutes, you're just stalling. Okay. <laughs> that's what I should tell my dad. <laughs> Like, why are you praying so long? Thanksgiving dinner. Come on, let's get to the point. (laughs) Just kidding. Anyway, but the merchant, he gets on his knees and he's like, again, you know, begging. He's like, please, you know, I didn't mean to offend you. I was just gathering this for my daughter. And the beast is kind of like, hey, I'm not a lord. I'm just a beast. And I don't like your compliments. And I don't like you. So he's like, I'm not moved by your speeches. But you did say that you have daughters. His like attention seemed to be piqued by that. He's He's like, like, tell me more. (laughs) He's like, here's a deal. This is the one condition that I will allow you to live. If you get one of your daughters to willingly come here in your place, I'll let you go. And if your daughter refuses to die instead of you, you'll come back within three months. Three months? That's what it says. Oh, I thought it was three days. No, it's just three months. Man, that's plenty of time. Yeah, to say goodbye to your daughter. Yeah, that's way longer than 15 minutes. But the merchant was like, okay, he agreed to it, but he's like, did not even have a thought in his mind that he was going to allow his daughters to be sacrificed for his sake. But he was happy to have the three months that he could see his children one last time. So he swore that he would return. And the beast's like, okay, but you're not going to leave empty-handed. Go to the room where you were staying, and there's a big chest in there. Fill it with whatever you want. And then I'll have it sent to your house. Which I was like, wow, that's kind of nice for this guy who's like so pissed that you were stealing roses to just freely give him whatever he wants from inside of your house. And you're going to kill him anyway. So the good man, the merchant is like, okay, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to have some comfort to leave to my children at least. So he goes back and he finds a lot of pieces of gold and whatever. And he puts it in the chest, locks it, and then goes out to the horse in the stable. And he leaves the palace with just as much grief as he entered it with, even though he's not on the brink of death anymore. So his horse of its own accord takes the roads out of the forest and suddenly gets them back to the house in the country. And all the children come back and they're so excited to see him, but he was like really depressed and sad. And instead of like being happy to see his kids, he just bursts into tears and he gives her the roses and he says, take these roses, but You know, you don't know the price that I had to pay for them. (laughs) And then he tells them what happened. And they're all really upset. And the older daughters are super, of course, 
mad at Belle and starts saying terrible things about her. She's like, oh, see, that's what you get for asking for stupid roses. If we would just ask for clothes like we did, then this wouldn't have happened. It was all your fault that he picked these roses and now her dad's going to die because you're stupid and you ask for roses instead of expensive stuff like us. So they're blaming Belle for basically killing their dad. Man, I've had so many people in my life like this that like come into my life that it's like no matter what happens, they're just always... There's always something to complain or blame somebody for, yeah. even if it's like something where it's like, it obviously it was an unforeseen circumstance. Yeah. She and like you mentioned too, in the book, it's like she was, it made the point in summer would it be something super easy, not expecting it to be winter and all this stuff. Yeah. She didn't know it was going to take her dad until winter time to get through. And of course we also know that like the way that she is, is like a person that, If he had gotten home and been like, I wasn't able to get anybody anything. Nobody got dresses. Nobody got anything. And I'm sorry, like beauty. It was wintertime. There were no roses. She would have been like, that's fine, dad. Yeah. We're just glad you're home is what she would have said. Yeah. And, and so the sisters are like insulting her and yelling at her. And then she's like, look, she's not even crying. She's not even sad about what she's done. She's not even shedding a single tear. And then Beauty's like, well, why would I shed a tear? He's like, I know that my dad doesn't need to die on my account. Like the beast said that if one of his daughters came in his stead, that he wouldn't die. So I'm going to go and sacrifice myself to the beast so that my father can live. And I'll live the rest of my life happily that I have this proof of proof of how much I love my father. Yeah. And I also, I don't know if this comes up, but this is like one of the only times where the sons pop back up, like in the yeah. story. So they do. They're like, no, don't go, Belle. Like, we'll go. We'll find this beast and we're going to beat the crap out of him. We're going to kill him and or we're going to die trying. And then the father's like, no, 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 don't do that. Because this beast lives in like this crazy magical place. I'm sure he has magical powers. Like, this is probably the best plan. And I think that it's interesting, too, because there's like a component, too, of like, I gave my word yeah. Which is like exactly in The Girl Who Married the Snake. Her yeah. fam like her family was trying to think of a different plan where this didn't have to happen. This like sad thing that they thought was about to happen. And they were like, Oh, you shouldn't do it. And they're like, Nope, gave my word. Like, this is what we're doing. Yeah, for sure. Cause he's it said, you know, he swore an oath to the beast that that's what would happen if he if he would he swore thinking that he was gonna come back in three months and die. Um, not thinking that any of his daughters would step in and take his place. Yeah. But he gave kind of hope. He's like, he was very, obviously he didn't want beauty to leave. He didn't want her to die in his place, but he was just so says he was like charmed by her kind and generous offer that he had could do nothing but accept it. And he was really sad. He's like, you know, I'm old. I'll only use a few, lose a few years, but I regret that for your sakes. And so Beauty's like, know what? You can't stop me. I'm going to go. And so she did. And her sisters were super stoked that Beauty was off to basically kill herself because they were just, again, super jealous of all her virtuous and amiable qualities. I was just going to say, in my version of the story, one thing that I think is super interesting um, is she says, you can't stop me from following you. I may be young, but I'm not fiercely attached to life. And I would rather be devoured by that monster than die of grief from losing you. Oh, that's super sweet. Well, but also I'm like, I find that a little concerning. The idea that like, I'm not fiercely attached to life. Yeah. Where I'm like, okay, that's, it's interesting reasoning, (laughs) but it's also like from a kind of a mental health standpoint, like uh, saying 
something like that. Yeah, it is, like, like it does um, like kind of raise. Suicidal? Yeah, it raises some questions of like, okay, why aren't you attached to life? So I just thought it was interesting from like, like just my 2020 perspective, yeah. like looking at this like story where I read that phrase and I'm like, um. <laughs> what is interesting too, because and again, I'm not sure how like life was in France in the you know 1700, but like in in lots of cultures, like you talk about you know like samurai culture, that's like a big thing is to be like you know you you're not you don't hold on to life. You're not afraid of death. You're willing to give it up at a moment's notice because that's like just what you do, you know? So it's like, I, I don't know. Yeah. It doesn't, that's a very different culture and circumstances than, you know, yeah. than and this so, when you're a warrior in like feudal Japan versus a young girl in yeah. France. I mean, but there's also that wisdom kind of in that, like her father, even though he had lived a longer life, he still has kids that he has responsibilities for to take care of. While like beauty doesn't have those same kind of like responsibilities. She feels like her responsibility is to her father. Yeah. Which is interesting because that's come up in other stories too. Like Mulan, the, when we did the ballad of Mulan, like the, this kind of the source material of that. Which that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of the same logic of, you know, like when like 18, 19, 20 year olds going off to war, you know, where people that are older and have families and kids and wives, like, you know, lots of times they go off to war as well. But, you know, it's like they have so much life ahead of them, but they also don't have as much as as many other people. So dependent on them, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that is a really that is an interesting detail. So even though the merchant agreed to this, he was not happy about it. And it said he was, you know, so afflicted by this that he forgot all about this chest of gold. So when he went into his room, he saw that somehow that chest had been brought to his house. And he's like, oh, my gosh. And he was like, oh, man, I'm not going to tell my kids that this has happened because my daughters, my sons, they're all going to want to return to town. But I but I don't want to leave the country because it'll be easier to live out our life here in the country on this money than it would be if we were to go back into town. But knowing that beauty was like going to go and die in the next day, he trusted her with the secret also probably because let's be honest, she was his favorite. Yeah. And she knew that she would, he knew that she would keep the secret. So when she said that, she was like, Oh my gosh, father, while you were gone, two gentlemen came and were like courting our, my sisters and they were begging for your consent to their marriage She's like, why don't you use this money to like be a dowry for them so that they can marry these gentlemen and they can go off and have a good life. And so even though her sisters were always so mean to her and just like horrible to her, she forgave them any bad things they did. And she just wanted her father to use the money to what would best help them be able to have good lives. And so with that, the next day, Beauty's leaving and... The brothers are really concerned. The father's upset. But these stepsisters rub onions in their eyes to force themselves to cry because they're not at all sad that she's leaving, but they didn't want to make it seem like she was not. So the only one not crying when she left was Beauty because she knew that it would make them even more sad to see her sad and upset that they're leaving, which is like, you know, again, they're showing how <laughs> what a good person she is. Like every single thought of hers is not about herself, but for other people. She's like, she's not crying even though she's going to die because she doesn't want to make her family feel worse about the fact that she's going to die. It's yeah. like, oh man. So she actually goes and her father comes with her. So the horse goes 
takes the road directly to the palace and they see the they see the palace illuminated on the hill. They go back in. Again, it's kind of a similar thing. There's no one there, but they see this table all set up splendidly. And uh, they're like, oh, well, we might as well eat up. And so Belle says, oh, <laughs> Beast surely has a mind to fatten me up before he eats me since he provides such plentiful entertainment. <laughs> Which I'm like, I love gallows humor. Yeah. Like, especially when it's like, if you're going through something like horrible, like gallows humor can be so helpful. And like, I've heard from people that they're like, if you hear somebody employing gallows humor, kind of like at their own expense, yeah. laugh at the joke because yeah. like that makes them feel better. If you're laughing at the joke instead yeah. of being like, Oh God, wow, that's depressing. Yeah. Cause it, yeah. So that's just a life advice for anybody. If you hear somebody <laughs> making a joke about like, you know, their impending doom or something that, and you're like, oh, I don't really want to laugh at like breast cancer. And it's like, well, if if the person who has breast cancer is making jokes about it, laugh at their jokes. Yeah. When Just I've been in, be kind. When I've been in situations like that, I've been like somewhere in the middle. Like I laugh mostly because I can't help but laugh. And actually like when I'm uncomfortable, that's like my go-to is to laugh <laughs> yeah. as well. But it's like I start off laughing at the joke and then I end up laughing and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Don't say that. Ha 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 ha. The worst so I don't know was if that's like, helpful or not. The worst for me was when I'd be like making jokes to like the doctors because the doctors were the people who were like in the room or whatever. This was like when I was in the hospital and my husband was in the hospital. There's a period of our lives like five years ago where everything was like going bad. But I would make a joke to the doctors, gallows humor and ab- no laughs. I don't know whether they train them not to or whether <laughs> doctors are just a particular just like, humorless <laughs> bunch. We need you to know that we take this very seriously. Yeah. And I was like, dude, I just need someone to laugh at my joke because everything seems pretty dark right now. They're like, nope. Yeah. So after this great gallows humor that Belle employs, they hear this great, loud, terrible noise. And the merchant like starts shaking and crying. And he's starting to say like his goodbyes to Belle because he's afraid that the beast is coming. And then Beauty gets really scared and is like starts looking up and she sees this horrible form of the beast coming but she took her courage as best she can and the beast asks her it's like did you come willingly and she's like uh, yeah yes yes i did and so the beast is like okay good you know he turns to the the merchant he's like you kept your word i'm very obliged to you but go your way tomorrow morning and never think of coming back and so the merchant says it's like farewell beauty farewell beast and then the monster backed away and as the monster is backing away, he grabs Beauty. And he's like so scared. He's like, oh, I'm scared to death. He's like, you know what? You, you, you go back. I'll stay. I'll do this. And she's like, no, father, you'll leave tomorrow morning and you'll leave me here. And, you know, she basically says like, leave me to the protection of Providence. She's like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. We've made our, our bed and now we're going to sleep in it. And with that, they go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's been kind of a rough day. So Beauty immediately fell asleep. And in her dream, this like very beautiful kind of like mystical woman appeared and said to her, he's like, oh, I'm very happy with your goodwill and this action of giving up your own life to spare your father. It will not go unrewarded. And so when she wakes up in the morning, she goes to her father to hope, hopefully give him a little comfort, tells her all about the dream, but still he couldn't help but feeling like my daughter's going to die. So he cried and 
looked at his daughter one last time, what he thought, and left. I was just going to say, one thing that I do want to say about the dream is inside of the novel, her having dreams is super, super important because it's not like a woman coming to her being like, like, uh, your beauty will, or your beauty, your kindness <laughs> will bring you satisfaction. It's actually the beast in Prince form comes uh. to her in her dream and he's like giving her like little hints, but they're spending time together as she sleeps, like getting to know each other. But yeah. she, she is weirded out because she doesn't know who this guy is, but she feels like love and attachment to him. Yeah. And everything around them looks exactly like the castle. It's almost like they go into this like other dimension. But one thing that's super funny in the book is in the dream, it says a young man beautiful as Cupid is painted. Oh my gosh. Had a voice that touched her heart. And I'm like, that is just this really obvious callback to Cupid and Psyche when Psyche is seeing Cupid in his form at night when they're together. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't think of that. And it does not go, it does not talk about that at all in this version of the story. It doesn't. And it just which like, is, yeah, it just says like, oh, kind of this little fairy. And it's like, oh, that's like a weird little like uh, random aside. And I think it's funny because it's like the woman who was trying to shorten this for like kind of like children's yeah. version of the story had to figure out a way to completely cut out all of the stuff that happens in the dreams. Yeah. Because beauty has the dreams the entire, every single night that she's like with the beast in the beast Interesting. Castle. The interesting thing about that too, is like in the Cupid and Psyche story, it's like while they're asleep that they're like talking to each other in their true form in their true form. Yeah. Like she's talking to Cupid. Yeah. Or even night, and that's like, how they fall in love and she never sees him. Yeah. But they're just talking in the, the dark. Cause even in like, the girl who married a snake or Hans, my hedgehog. It is yeah. like it's at night or East of the sun, West of the moon. It is at night when the person is in their true form. That's so crazy. And yeah. So it is interesting that like then in like the novelization, it is the beast is in Prince form, but in this dream, but then in this short story, that's completely cut out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's just this magic fairy. That's like, Hey, you're going to be rewarded. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Well, it's just so, like, like, oh, okay. So her dad was not very comforted by that. Rightly <laughs> so. He's like, okay, I'm glad you feel that way. And as soon as she was gone, Beauty went down the hall. And she felt like crying, but she's like, you know what? I'm going to leave myself to God. I'm not going to be sad or unhappy about this because, like, the beast's going to eat me tonight. I'm just going to enjoy my life for this last day that I have. And so she went around. She took in all the view of the castle, admiring, like, the beautiful gardens, the beautiful furniture that was all throughout it. So as she's walking through, looking at everything, she sees this door, which has written over it, Beauty's Apartment. And she's like, huh, okay. So she opens it up and she goes in and she's like, wow, like this is even more beautiful and magnificent than like everything that I've seen in the rest of the house. There's a huge library, like, and you know how much I love reading books. There's a giant harpsichord here with music books there. Like, I love to play the harpsichord. She's like, well, like, I guess... I'm going to have plenty of fun like this last day of my life doing everything that I love to do. She's like, I just want to stay here all day and enjoy these things before I die. And she opened like a library book and started to read. And in the library book in letters of gold was written, welcome beauty, banish fear. You are queen and mistress here. Speak your wishes, speak your will. Swift obedience meets them still. And so with that, she's like, oh, you know what? At this moment, still probably thinking she's going to die. She's like, there's nothing I want more than to see 
my father and see what he's doing. And so she looks over and she sees this looking glass and looks into it. And with it, she sees her own home where her father is there. And he's just so sad mourning the loss of his daughter. And she sees her sisters who are going out to greet her father. And even though they're trying to act like they're sad that Belle is gone, like you can't help but see, it says like, you can't help but see the joy they felt for having got rid of their sister visible in every feature. And then after a moment, all that disappears. And she's like, okay, maybe this isn't going to be so bad. So she goes and she finds dinner ready. And while she's sitting at the table, eating all by herself. She's entertained by this excellent concert of music, even though she can't see anybody around, which I thought was like, Hey, that you sounds kind sing, of familiar. You can dance. <laughs> Cease and desist, number three. Yeah. It's also interesting because uh, in like Cupid and Psyche, the palace that uh, Psyche was in by herself, like moving around throughout the day all by herself. She knew that there were like servants unseen that yeah. would either be like playing music, preparing food, keeping things nice for her. And so there's still that element of like, she might be alone, but she doesn't feel alone. Yeah. So then, so she ate her meal entertained by these invisible things. Then later that night, she goes back down after spending the day reading and playing the harpsichord. And she goes down to eat dinner and she hears that terrible noise that the beast always makes. And of course she's terrified thinking like, that she's going to die. He's going to come eat her. It's supper time. Like I'm eating this delicious food and the beast is going to eat me. But the beast comes and he's like, beauty, will you give me leave to come and eat with you? And she's like, uh, you know, this is your place. Like do whatever you want. And the beast is like, no, 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 no. You are the mistress here. And you can just tell me to get out of here. And if you find me troublesome and I'll just go away. He's like, but before you do, just tell me, do you think I'm ugly? He's <laughs> <This is> very <laughs> insecure. <laughs> and she's like, well, I can't lie. Yes, you are ugly. But you know what? After the way you've treated me, I feel like you are good natured. I think you're a good guy. And the beast's like, yes, I am. But, you know, not even just including my ugliness. You know, I'm not, I have no sense. Like, I'm not very smart. I'm poor. I'm stupid. I'm not worth anybody's time. And then Beauty's like, no, 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 no. Hey, man, you're you're too hard on yourself. Yeah, like, buddy, you're like, bumming me out. <laughs> it's like, no, you're not. You're you've got. I'm sure you have lots of good qualities. It's like, you can come and, and join me as I eat dinner. And so the beast's like, okay. He's like, go ahead and eat. And you know, everything in this palace is yours. Do everything that you want. Anything that you want to do, just say it, and it'll appear. You can have whatever you want. And she's like, oh, you're so you know obliging. Like, I'm so impressed with your kindness. He's like, when I think about that, I can barely see, you know, the deformity, the beastly form that you have. And the beast's like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm very good hearted, but I'm still just an ugly, hideous monster. So throughout the dinner, they're having this like conversation, basically beast talking about how horrible and ugly he is and beauty being like, no, no, man, you're not so bad. And then. We've all had first dates. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's how all my first dates have been. I'm just like, I'm horrible. I'm disgusting looking. I don't know why you'd consent to having me sitting here while you're eating. I'm surprised (laughs) you're not throwing up into your own plate at the side of me. Nothing makes a woman like more interested than just like ragging on yourself. (laughs) And then after that, Beauty finishes her supper. When she's about to go to bed, the beast says, Beauty, 
Will you be my wife? <laughs> and who would not want to agree to that after just hearing this guy completely ragging on himself for like an hour? And, you know, she didn't say anything for a bit. She was afraid to make him angry if she refused because she's heard, you know, the horrible noises that he's made and all that. But at the end, she's like, no, sorry, I won't. And at that, you know, it says he went to sigh, but he let out this like such a loud, frightful hiss that the whole palace echoed. And Beauty was like scared to death. And the Beast was really sad about like, having upset her. And he's like, okay, well, good night. And he turns around and leaves. And Beauty kind of just says to herself, with a good deal of compassion in her heart for the Beast, she's like, oh, it's so sad to be so good-natured, but so ugly. <laughs> 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 oh, so Beauty spent three months in the palace, in isolation, quarantine. Just kidding. <laughs> that's what, like this story about being trapped inside of like one place for months i'm like it hits different during quarantine oh man yeah but she has anything that she wants she has this library full of books she loves reading so she spends her time pretty well doing all these fun things and she's having dinner every night with the beast and after a while she stops being like scared and nervous when he comes in and she starts actually looking forward to seeing him and talking to him because she starts, you know, like becoming like really good friends with him. And every night at the end of dinner, the beast always asks her to marry him. And she always says no. But one time she says, look, man, I, it's kind of uncomfortable that you are always asking me to marry you. I wish I could, but like, I'm just too sincere to, lead you on and make you believe that that's ever going to happen. Like I will always esteem you as a friend. So puts that beast right in the friend zone. Yeah. That's where he goes. And the beast replies, he's like, okay, yes. Yeah, I know. I know. Like that's my lot, but I will always love you. Just promise that you'll never leave. I'll be happy as long as you just stay here with me, even if it's just as friends. That's her beauty was kind of, you know, flattered and taken at these words and, as she's thinking on that, she starts thinking about her father and how sad she is that she misses him. So as she's missing her dad, thinking about what the beast has said about never leaving her, she's like, I could promise to never leave you, but I really want to see my dad. Like I'm, I would be so sad unto death. I'd be so sad that I would die if you refuse to let me go and visit my father one last time before I'm forced to stay here with you forever. And the beast's like, well, I would rather die than make you unhappy. They're having this competition about who's going to die from being the more sad. So the beast is kind-hearted, so he gives in to her request. Not so kind-hearted to just let her go and live with her family again. (laughs) (laughs) But she says, okay, go. You know, and Beauty's like, I wouldn't want you to die from the sadness. I promise I'll come back in a week. He's like, you've shown me in that looking glass that my sisters are married. My brothers are all gone to the army. My father's all alone. Just let me spend one week with him and then I'll be back. And the beast says, okay, you'll be there tomorrow morning. When you want to come back, all you have to do is put your ring on the table before you go to bed. And then you'll find yourself back at the palace the next morning. So she said goodnight to the beast. He left and she goes to bed. And when she wakes up the next morning, she finds herself in her father's house. So finding herself in her father's house that day, she rings a little bell that's at her bedside table and a maid comes in who freaks out at seeing Beauty in the house. And at her shriek, the 
the merchant comes in. I guess the good man, they call him now that he's not a merchant anymore, runs up the stairs and he was like so overjoyed that he thought he might die at seeing his daughter again. And they like come in and embrace in a hug for another quarter of an hour. It's the proper amount of time for prayers and hugs in this fairy tale France. So Belle gets up and she realizes I don't have any clothes to put on. Yeah, because she just got magic. (laughs) She's like, I'm just like in my pajamas. I don't have any clothes here. And just as she's kind of worried about this, the maid's like, oh, look what I found, like a big trunk full of gowns and all sorts of stuff. And these gowns are covered in like gold and diamonds. And Beauty is like, oh, that beast is taking such good care of me. She's like, you know what? Just give me the plainest one that there is there and give the others to my sisters. And when she says that, all of the clothes disappear. (laughs) And she's like, what? What's going on? And it's like, the beast insisted that you keep these clothes for yourself. And so as soon as she like, puts her mind to the fact that she's going to be the one to use these clothes. The gowns and the, the trunks come back. Yeah, he's like, don't give these away to your garbage sisters. These were a gift from me to you. <laughs> yeah, so Beauty dresses herself in this like beautiful golden diamond encrusted dress. And they call for her sisters to bring their husbands over. And this, I think, even though it's kind of like a little side thing, I think is kind of the crux of the story in a way. Yep, yep. They call for the sisters to bring their husbands and they both come and these sisters are super unhappy. Surprise, surprise, because they're always unhappy. Yeah, they're they're always, a, there's always something pessimist. to complain about. But they were super stoked to have gotten married. So the older sister had married like a gentleman who was super handsome, but he was just like so full of himself and so obsessed with himself that he like completely neglected his wife. And the second one had married like a really witty, like funny, charming guy. But he only used that wit to like basically like belittle and make fun of everyone around him. And since he was around nobody more than he was around his wife, he was just like constantly making Ugh. witty, snide, funny jokes at his wife's expense. And so she was miserable. And then they come and they see Belle dressed in these like gorgeous dresses, which we know how much they love beautiful dresses. And they're like sick. Like the sight of her just makes them sick because they're so jealous to see her dressed like more beautiful than ever. Like you look like a freaking princess and it disgusts us. And so they go down the garden and both of the sisters are crying to these these married sisters who married people that they thought that they really liked are crying to this person that's been held prisoner in a castle (laughs) of a beast about how terrible their lives are. And they were like, how come this person who's being trapped in this beast castle is happier than we are. We're the ones that are supposed to be happy, not her. She's supposed to be dead. Like let's make her break her promise with the beast and make her stay longer than a week. So what we're going to do from now on is we're going to be so nice to her for this whole week that she will not be able to leave us when the week is over. And so they do exactly that. They start being super nice to her and You know, Beauty is just so happy that finally her sisters have seemed to accept her and are being kind to her that she's just like crying because she's so overjoyed. But then the week is over and the sisters put on this big show of how upset they're going to be. They start tearing out their hair and tearing their dresses and they make Belle promise or they make Beauty promise to stay, you know, just one more week longer. So Beauty finds herself in this really tough situation She doesn't want to make the beast sad, but her sisters have finally accepted her and she sees how horrible it's going to be on them. She thinks if she leaves 
She was like, it's going to break their hearts. Like, I'm not going to get out of this without making someone extremely, extremely unhappy. So she was actually kind of looking forward to seeing the beast again because, again, she'd grown to love him like a friend. She had a really nice bond with him after all these dinners spent together. And so she wanted to see him again. And so after she'd agreed to stay longer, so she stayed past the week, it was about 10 days at this point, when she's sleeping, she dreamed that she was in the garden again back at the palace. And there she saw the beast in his regular beast form just lying on the grass in front of the arbor of roses that... Beauty's father had taken the roses from and just sees that he is just crying there on the floor and she's just heartbroken by how much pain that she's causing the beast. And he's like crying about how ungrateful she is. And she's like, oh my gosh, how horrible am I to do this to the beast who's done so much to try to make me happy? Like, it's not his fault that he's ugly. He's like, he's good. He's kind. Like, that's enough. Like, why did I refuse to marry him? Like, would I not be happier with him, like this beast, even though he looks hideous, but he's kind to me and he treats me well, than my sisters are with the husbands that they've married? Like, they thought that they were marrying these great matches, but all they can do is complain about how unhappy they are. It's like, I could be really happy with the beast. So she's like, you know what? I couldn't find a finer person, a finer husband that would make a woman happy than this beast who's like sweetness of temper and all these things. That's He has all the qualifications to become like a good husband. So she also says like, yeah, it's true that I don't feel like the tenderness of affection for him that I thought that I should have for the person I marry, but I have the highest gratitude, esteem, and friendship with this person that I've never found in anyone else. It's like, and I can't make him miserable if I were to be so ungrateful for those things that he's shown me if I were to not go back to him. So that night, determined to go back, she puts her ring on the table and goes to sleep. So she wakes up the next morning and is like super excited and happy to find herself in the Beast Palace once again. So she puts on one of her best looking outfits to try to make the Beast happy. And she waits all day till the evening when it's nine o'clock, which is the time that the Beast would always come to have dinner with her. And then like she's sitting there waiting. Nine comes around. She waits a little longer and the Beast never comes. And she's like, oh my gosh, he's dead. Like he said that he would be so sad that he would die. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead. So she starts running around the house, looking everywhere for him. And she's like, oh my gosh, like I've looked everywhere and I can't find him. And then she remembers her dream. And so she's like, oh my gosh, she was in the garden. So she runs out into the garden and she sees him there lying like out of his mind, like starving. She thought that he was dead. He wasn't moving at all. So she runs up to him, throws herself on him and like kind of like hugs him and she's like so sad for him. And he, she cries and her like tears fall onto him. And as she's on him, she realizes, Oh, I can feel his heartbeat. And so she runs and gets him some water and, and pours it on his head. And at that, he opens his eyes and he's like, Oh, you forgot your promise. You promised you'd come back. I thought I'd lost you. So I was going to starve myself to death here. It's like, but I'm so happy that I can see you one more time before I die. And then Beauty's like, no, no, you can't die. He's like, live to be my husband. Like, I'll marry you. Yes, I swear I'll be nothing but yours. He's like, I didn't think I had anything but friendship from you. But, you know, the grief that I feel now, seeing that you're going to die, I know that I can't live without you. And so once she had said those things, she saw the palace like sparkle with light. Fireworks start shooting up. Music started playing and everything like gave notice to this great and powerful event. But none of those things could distract. She just fixed her eyes on the beast, the person that she loved. And she was like scared because all of a sudden 
he had disappeared and at her feet was like one of the most beautiful men she had ever seen in her entire life. Beautiful as Cupid, you might say. <laughs> and he turns up to her. <laughs> he turns up to her and he's like, oh my gosh, thank you, thank you. You put an end to this horrible curse that I've been under that I was forced to look like a beast. So the prince is saying these things to her and she's like still not quite processing it. And she's like, okay, yeah, I get all that, but um, where's the beast? So the prince looks up at her and he's like, no, 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 you don't get it. I am the beast. I was cursed by this wicked fairy who condemned me to remain in the shape of a beast until a beautiful virgin agreed to marry me. And of course, like part of the spell was that I was not allowed to talk about the whole spell. And, you know, you were the only person on this whole earth that has the goodness in their heart to be able to see past this terrible presence to the kind person that I am inside. So in exchange for this, I'm going to offer you you know, my crown and my kingdom and everything of that will be yours. And so she agreed. She was super happy. She gives the prince her hand and helps him rise up. And they go together into the castle. And as they go into the castle, she is super stoked to see her father and his whole family, her brothers, her sisters, and even the beautiful lady that appeared to her in the dream. And this lady comes up to her and says, beauty, come and receive the reward of your judicious choice. You have preferred <laughs> virtue before either wit or beauty and deserve to find a person in whom all these qualities are united. It goes on to talk about how you're going to be a great queen and all of this stuff. And then this same lady, who I'm presuming is, I'm not, it's like, is she the wicked fairy? Is she a different good fairy? I'm not sure. But anyway, she turns to the sister and she's like, and as for you, which is like, yes, we know what's about yes. to happen. <laughs> it's like, I know your hearts and all the malice they contain. And she curses them to become statues. And she says, you'll stand before your sister's palace gate. And it's your punishment to behold her happiness. And it will be not in your power to return to being human until you come to recognize your like horrible traits that you have, the wickedness that's in your heart. And she adds with like a little jab at the like, but I'm very much afraid that you'll always remain statues because pride, anger, gluttony, and idleness are sometimes conquered. But the conversion of a malicious and envious mind is a kind of miracle. And she gives her wand a stroke, boom, and everything was done. The hall and everyone inside it were transported back into the prince's kingdoms. His subjects were there and received them both with joy so the beast, now a prince, married beauty and lived with her many years and their happiness, as it was founded on virtue, was complete. The end. Yes, we did it. Beauty and the beast. So the sisters being miserable with their husbands or realizing like, oh, we didn't get as good of a match. And then the sisters being the catalyst for the groom almost dying or the marriage almost oh breaking Oh my apart. gosh, yeah. It was Cupid and Psyche. I yes. forgot about that because her sisters come to visit. Yeah, her sisters had, they thought that, you know, she'd been like killed by, by the creature, the monster they thought she was foretold to be married to. Yeah. And so when Zephyr picks them up, which that was another thing in the, in the novel, Every now and then they would just say, and the wind was blowing like a gentle zephyr. And I was like, oh, oh I'm picking up on these callbacks. That's nice. Um, but when the sisters went to see their sister at Cupid's palace, uh -huh. they were upset because they were like, okay, she'd always been more beautiful than them. And they, you know, had been jealous of that. 
And then, you know, they were sad because while their husbands were well off and they were well married, they weren't as well married as her. And like in their jealousy, they kind of gave her some like bad advice. Mm-hmm. And well, it's interesting because it always seems to be a the father is the character that kind of gives them away in marriage. Yeah. Just like how a lot of marriage ceremonies are the father gives away their daughter in marriage. But then it always seems to be like a female relative, not always, but a lot of the times it seems to be like a female relative that like almost messes everything up. Yeah. And so, yeah, there's totally that element, which... But the sisters in Cupid and Psyche were not as horrible as these sisters were. (laughs) No, no. Because this story, this story... And we'll get into this in a little bit. It was all about teaching young girls what appropriate virtues they were supposed to have and what were the wrong, like, virtues. Yeah. And it was not anywhere nuanced. Like, everything was extreme. Like, Oh, yeah. You it know, was blatant. Be- it was blatant. Beauty was, like, just completely perfect. Everything that you would aspire to be that never could be. And the sisters were, like, everything horrible. Which is kind of interesting because, like, really those two aspects, like, exist in all of us in combination. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. we still are sometimes like those sisters as much as we wish that we weren't. So yeah. we can see ourselves in both sides. But obviously there's one that we should want to be like and one that we don't want to be like. Yeah. It, like, it makes it super, super clear. And we'll definitely, we're definitely going to have a longer, like, discussion about that. Because it's, like, the point of the story. Yeah. So, and then another thing, which, okay, this might be a callback to another story that might seem like a stretch, but I'm still going with it anyway. So in Hassan (laughs) of Basra, after he sees the beautiful woman who took off her skin, her like bird skin, when she put her bird skin on and flew away, he was heart sick and he started to starve himself for a month. And it was, the like the jinn whose palace he was living in that came back and found him nearly like dead that were like what happened to you and he was like my heart with love and anguish for this person i'm almost dying the same way that the beast yeah is like in this story where it's he's dying purely because of that longing for that person yeah that's, like, for someone that they know that they can never have because that's what he even said in the thing too like in, yeah. For Asana of Basra, like he knew that he could never be married to this person, but he was like just still so in love anyway. Yeah, which I do think it's funny to imagine that like to like the princess of all the jinn, Asana Basra was like a monster to her. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, he's sure. so ugly. And it is interesting too, because that took place like in an enchanted garden. Oh, on like yeah, the roof of the true. palace. Yeah. So it was like, that's kind of interesting too. Yeah. Um, and that, that was the animal bride episode. And so that one, it's <clears> like, <throat> it's a branch of this that's like off different. And so it's, it's interesting to see those, like there's still some elements inside of this story, even though yeah. Hassan of Basra is more of like a tangential connection. Yeah. It's not as like clear, relevant like Cupid and Psyche or the girl right. who married a snake. And so those are just some of the connections that I didn't want to like stop you in the middle of talking about to be like, 
Yeah. And this story, I was like, no, 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 we're on a good flow. Like, I'm gonna, we're going to get through the story. One thing that you brought up before we started recording, too, you asked me about how it described the beast in this version. And I was like, yeah, it didn't actually describe him except for to say that he was, like, hideous and ugly and horrible. But it didn't, like, say what he looked yeah. like. But there was an interesting word that you pointed out that said when she said no to marrying him, he made a, a hissing, hissing noise. sound. And yeah. in the versions that I have, like, translated, I know at one point it says that he is scaly. And so mm. it's interesting that when we read, you know, the uh, the girl who married a snake, that there is this, like, giant creature that is scaly and hisses. Yeah. But the art of him in different versions, it always changes with, like, an artist's, like, interpretation. Yeah. And also, like, the storytellers, it changes between being, like, a pig, bear, dog monster, which, yeah. when I was listening to one person describe it, they were saying man bear. Well, they didn't say man bear pig, but in my <laughs> head, I kept remembering a South Park episode with, like, man bear pig, and I was like, get out of my head. Oh, man, it's, now I want to go and reread the story with that image in my mind. I'm just like, it's man bear pig. I... I haven't watched South Park in probably like eight or nine years. So like the fact that that like popped into my head, I was like, what in the world? But yeah, based on what, wherever kind of the, the artists got a hold of the story in relation to other art that had already been created or different retellings that they heard, they all imagined it looking different or like different variations of it. Sometimes the beast is more, human but giant and like has a weird head or weird arms or like there's always something like animal about him but like the amount of it varies based on like the artist that's kind of interesting too and it's one of the things that's nice is like because you really can't interpret it so many ways and i think it's interesting that like when we have it the way that we kind of have it now that we see it you know we have the beast from disney's beauty and the beast which he has more of a a mammal thing going on yeah and for whatever reason mammals seem to be more acceptable to us as mammals i guess like things that are scaly like lizards and uh, we're just like uh i don't really like that birds humans seem to be kind of okay with the aesthetic of birds (laughs) But not like it's not like an insect or anything either. Yeah, but things things that drool, uh, things with like horns, like those are kind of I get those are our turnoffs. Maybe that's just my turnoffs. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, because like you think about like Beauty and the Beast, like the Beast. Yeah, he's like scary because he's an animal, and it's obviously like oh, you know, he doesn't look like a human. But it's like you could see like in the same way that you can like cuddle up with like a dog or something like it's not like repulsive to imagine like snuggling up to that guy yeah. you know what i mean yeah like there's still things that you could be like okay i can look past the fact that you're not a human and you know what i mean like have feelings for you like as a friend where that would be a lot harder if it was like you know a giant spider or something like that you yeah i didn't even think about like insects that it's like, oh, that's even like worse than if it was yeah. just like a giant spider that's crawling into bed with her at night. Oh, like, gosh. Gah. If it was it's like a snakes Scorpion, and spiders, those those crab. are the two for me. Like snake and spiders, those are the ones that I have like irrational levels of like fear and disgust about. Oh, that's so interesting. Because I'm cool with snakes. 
But I think that has more to do with like how much I was exposed to snakes like as I was growing up. I can tell you what the thing is with both spiders and snakes. I can rationalize it because I've forced myself to have to. This might not be the real reason, but (laughs) I feel like it's the venomous nature of them in the sense like they're so small. Like I could beat them in a fight fairly, but like if they sneak up on me and bite me without me knowing, which they totally can because they're like just small and around there, like they could kill me. And that's unfair. And I hate that. And it's like any spider I see, I'm like, I don't know if this is a venomous spider or not, that's like capable of killing me, but it could be. And it's the same thing with snakes. It's like, I see a snake, I'm like, this is probably a harmless snake, but it might not be. I don't know what all the venomous snakes look like. This snake might bite me and kill me. That I think is what it is with those two things for me. Yeah, you just don't, you don't want to get pain. Yeah, I don't want to be killed by these stupid, unfairly uh, venomized creatures. So when we talked about Bluebeard, we talked about how weird it was that Charles Peralt had taken this story that, for all intents and purposes, was just supposed to be a horror story that adults would tell other adults, that it was kind of like, oh, worst case scenario, you marry a murderer who's got a murder basement. But then Charles Peralt like, took that story and he was like, but I'm going to put this weird moral onto it yeah, and give it to children when it's like... No, that has no reason to be given to children, that story. So just like how he kind of did that with like Bluebeard, Beaumont wanted to take this story and pare it down and then focus very specifically. And like you said, she was really obvious with like the message that she was trying to send to her audience, which was like young girls of Mm -hmm. like what things they needed to have. I wrote a list as I was reading of all the virtues that were being named for the good sisters and the bad sisters, the like virtues and vices, virtues and vices of Belle and her siblings, because I was like, it's really fascinating just how blatant they are where it's like good virtues, intelligence, beauty, Charming, polite, kind, compassionate, sweet, sincere. These are all words that are being used to describe Belle. Even strong, hardworking, patient, forgiving, honest. Those are all the words that are used to describe beauty or Belle. I keep saying Belle because that's what it is in like French because it means beauty. (laughs) And then the sisters, the words to describe her that I wrote down were jealous, vain, proud, rude, arrogant, lazy, envious, and malicious. It is also interesting, too, though. They were described as being very, very beautiful. Yes. So it's like beauty beauty is a virtue, but it's better to be beautiful and all these other good things and not those bad things. It's also interesting to me that... One thing that kept being included is how much the father valued intelligence, even in his daughters. Yeah. And how he would pay for tutors to come and teach them, how Belle loved reading. She loved playing instruments, all this stuff. And that is because Beaumont was kind of aristocratic. She was like higher up the social order 
And she was writing two girls who were also high up in that social order. So yeah. even though she wasn't like advocating for like women to become scientists yeah. or, you know, she's like not promoting like STEM or anything like that for like <laughs> girls. What she was doing was saying like, you know what, if you're going to be in society, you need to be smart. You need to be witty. You have to be intelligent. Even like women, you got to be interesting to listen to. You have to be well-educated because you could end up being married to a man who needs an intelligent wife by his side. And so even though, yeah, it wasn't necessarily like intelligence toward the point of a career, it was intelligence for the sake of... Like becoming a well-rounded person. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. And I did think it was interesting too, looking into this just a little bit, like that both, you know, Beaumont and Villeneuve were women. Yeah. So like the the novel was written by a woman and then this was adapted by a woman. And, you know, it still had some of the same like fairy tale kind of like tropes to it, but it was just interesting to see. I feel like, I don't know. And it's probably maybe I'm just biased because I knew going into reading it that they were both women that had written it, but it does feel like it came at it in a different way. Yeah. Like it wasn't like, this is what is desirable to a man for you to be. It was like, this is what it is desirable for you to be as a person. You know, like this is the type of person you need to become, not because this is the type of person you need to be to be worthy of marrying someone. Yeah. Because really this is talking about, this is the type of person you want to be like, Belle. And this is the type of person, and these are the type of qualities that you want to look for in a spouse. It was definitely coming from a female perspective, it seemed yes. like. I would agree with you, especially after reading like Charles Perrault's like Bluebeard. It was very obvious to me that that was a story written by a man trying to tell women what they should be. Yeah. Even though, because like it, I Even mean, though, like, I think the women you are said the main that, characters. Yeah, I was going to say, like, even I think during the episode, you said something where you were like, sometimes it sounds like Charles Perrault is sympathizing more with Bluebeard, the murderer, yeah. than he is with, like, the, yeah. like the woman in the story. And it is like, he's he's saying, like, like, oh, women, you shouldn't be, like, jealous or curious because you could mess up like your husband, you need to just trust your husband. And you're like, wait, but that doesn't make sense because their husband was a murderer. They shouldn't just trust yeah. the murderer husband. That doesn't make any sense. And it was because like Charles Perrault felt like women should just listen to their husbands. They should just like whatever your husband does, like tells you, don't be curious because you'll mess stuff up. And like, that was the point he was trying to get across as a man speaking to a woman. And so yeah. it is interesting reading this story and it's a woman speaking to a woman. Yes. It is still a product of her time. Feminists will look at this story and still be like, okay, but I think it, there's still some problems. Yes. From For our sure. 2020 perspective, feminist, fe feminism wise. Yeah. Like there's some issues, but like you're pointing out, it is clear. It's like a woman talking to women about like, good qualities for them to have, how to plan for their future, how to plan for like future happiness and marriage. Yeah. It like much more easily resonates with a modern audience without having to be like changed. Like you said, there still are things that are 
different in today's society that yeah. will like yeah. notice, but it's it's not like you're rolling your eyes when you're reading it as much as some of the other things that we have have read. Yeah, which was interesting. Which is why like the adaptation is like pretty. I mean, you talk about like the Disney adaptation or whatever. It's like it's pretty faithful in so many ways. Like even though it is still very different. Yeah. And I love seeing like all the little things that were like, oh, that's where this like little nugget of like the Disney stuff came from. Like knowing like how filmmaking does like, oh, they had to make like the all the furniture and stuff be people that were turned into or into these things because like they needed characters for her to interact with. Because it's not very fun to watch a movie about someone walking around a castle reading books to themselves all day. But it's like they got that from that whole part where there's music being played as if she can't see it or... You know, and like even the thing about like the rose, you know, there's a lot of differences there too, but it's like a rose is like a very important symbol in in this version of the story. And yeah, I mean, this, I think this beast is a lot more um, sympathetic because he was very helpful. I mean, it's funny because when he goes into the house of the beast, you're kind of expecting like, oh, when's the part where the beast comes roaring in and is like, ah, but the beast mostly was just like, oh yeah, come in my house, eat my stuff. It's fine. Like. And then head out. The only reason he got upset was because... Because of the roses. Yeah, the, like, rose got, like, cut. And he was like, why would you take something from me when I've so willingly been giving you things? Because you've been so willingly giving me things that I, I didn't think that you would mind. Yeah, he, like, didn't think anyone <laughs> was, like, say, in the house. Does it say in the novel why he's so attached to the roses? Not that I've gotten to yet. I'm wondering if it does. I'm like, and I feel bad because I was like telling people like the similarities like in the novel, but I haven't quite finished it yet because I was at the doctor's office with my son yesterday instead of. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> just interesting. Like, but, yeah. It was one of those things that stood out to me as like, is there something I'm just not getting? Because again, it's like he's filling up chests full of gold and clothes and all yeah. this good stuff, stuff that we would see like obviously that is something very valuable yeah like, but then like, like the i would rose. never think to go into someone's house and take their clothes or gold or whatever yeah but it's like if i was walking around and i saw like a rose growing somewhere you know it's like you could so easily be like oh i'll just pluck like a rose and take it with me yeah. from wherever like it'll grow back there's plenty of them here or you know what i mean like, yeah yeah no i do know what you mean but of all does, the stuff that happened, it's like... Yeah. I mean, one thing that is also interesting is that in stories like these, it it always seems to be some tiny little thing that isn't with bad intent. Because, like, Beauty didn't ask for the rose with any intent for her father to, like, get in trouble or for even a bad reason. She yeah. just was like, oh, it's just a, like, a, it's a little thing. But, like, one thing that just keeps coming up is how, like, the hinges of fate turn on so tight. Like, mundane. Like, a hinge. That it's, like, it's always just this, like, little deviation in the life trajectory of a person that seems to send them off on this, like, grand adventure. Yeah. And it usually, if, if that little thing was meant with good intent it always seems like the end has a good intent even if for a while it seems like the story's like going on right i don't know if that's always true or if that's like a blanket statement about like all fairy tales all the time but it seems like you know when somebody does something with bad intent or malicious intent that turns the story like that usually leads to a bad end but yeah if it's them doing something with a good intent but it starts it changes their like 
kind of life trajectory, it seems to lead them to a good place, even if the, the journey is dark getting there. Yeah. I thought it was interesting too. Like I couldn't help but think about Cinderella where the father's going off and the sisters or stepsisters, as is the case, Cinderella, like, oh, get us like beautiful dresses and all this stuff. And then in Cinderella, she was like, oh, just give me the first twig that brushes your hat on your way home or whatever. Yeah. It was like, it was like, that's like so similar to Beauty being like, oh, just get me like a rose, like something simple. And then that is what like, you know, turned those hinges of her fate that it was like, because then that branch. She planted that tree, which. A magic tree that then gave her like her clothes and stuff. And so it is always like those little things. And it's interesting, too, like it has to do with nature. I just think, too, like, you know, I don't know, like people, I think we're much more connected with nature in the past than we are today. Like, you know, before everything was like industrialized. Yeah. Like you lived in nature. Yeah. Your 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 medicine was like nature. Your like everything. It was like from the ground, you know, like if you went. If you like were sick, you know, somebody's grandma is going to come over to your house with some poultice from stuff that she had gathered up and like mashed up and like was like, oh, this will draw the sickness out of you. Or Yeah, there's this like interesting association. It seems like in the past with like nature and like providing like even that tree, like the tree, like magically was providing all this stuff. Whereas like, you know, we don't really think of nature as providing so much as like other people or you know, like yeah, the supermarket or, you know what yeah, I mean? Like, like industry. Yeah. Industry provides not nature, even though, even though most things go back. I was just thinking about the other day too, um, thinking about like how like batteries and cell phones and stuff are made. And it was like, you know, like the elements come from the earth, like in order to make a battery for like a phone or whatever, like yeah. a lithium ion battery, like they have to mine lithium. So it all goes back to like just digging in the dirt through rocks. Yeah. But somehow we take that and turn it into like a computer that we carry in our hand that does like seemingly magical stuff. Yeah. It's just like so weird that everything we have really does go back to nature, but we just don't think about it because we're so much more disconnected because there's so many more processes yeah. that have to happen to get it there. But yeah, that connection going back to that, like that connection with nature is like really clear in like the fairy tales. One thing that has always been kind of like a curious little like mind bending thing for me is that it always seemed like while like the beast or whoever was the magical, like the creature that was cursed, Mm -hmm. if they're being cursed for like the reason of like, Oh, they needed to learn to like not look on the outward appearance of a person, but to look at their heart and whatever. It always seemed like beauty was the one that was actually learning that lesson. Yeah. And so that always confused me because I was like, it doesn't feel like the beast is learning the lesson that they're supposed to be learning. It seems like beauty is learning that lesson. Yeah. But I recently had this thought and this is just like, my theory, and maybe it's obvious to like a lot more people than like just me, but the person who's really supposed to be learning the lesson that like, like a handsome man's not what is important, but like the goodness of them is important is the person reading the story. (laughs) Yeah. And I feel like this version makes it really obvious because she, it feels like she really, the author Beaumont, she's really aiming the story at, 
the audience of like, remember, you don't want to be like a vain, malicious, like sister. You want to be someone who only cares about intelligence. Cause it's also funny to me that they're like, Oh, my husband is the worst cause he's vain. And my husband is the worst because he's too smart. <laughs> yeah. And then beauty kind of learns this lesson where she's like, Oh, to have a happy marriage, you don't need a husband who's beautiful or intelligent. He just has to have a lot of money and a good heart. She doesn't say a lot of money. That's just something that I've noticed. Like, he just has to have a heart of gold. And then at the end of the story, she gets a handsome, intelligent, heart of gold husband. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, but really the lesson of this story is that you, the reader looking for a spouse probably aren't going to get like handsome, intelligent, kind hearted, rich husband. It's like, Oh, pick one. (laughs) Just joking. Um, (laughs) But pick the kind hearted one. Yeah. They're like, pick the kind hearted one. Like if you have the option. Cause that's the thing too, that I noticed is that bell, she kind of learns, but it's not like, it's not like she she pretty much always was okay with how the beast looked. Like, yeah, she would get scared, and she did kind of have to see past it. But from the day that she went to the castle thinking that she was going to be eaten, she recognized all the kind things that he had done for her. The only thing that she realized, she didn't realize like, oh, you have to just see past the outward appearance and look on the heart, because she always was kind of doing that from the beginning. Yeah. The one thing that she had to learn, like you pointed out, was that those things that she recognized in the beast are the important qualities to have in a husband. It was just that the connection very, very specifically about marriage, which I think is like getting to your point that it's for the reader to know this is what you should look for in a mate. Yeah. So that kind of like leads us into what all of these stories have been about, which is marriage and the importance of marriage, what its function is inside of a culture, all of those topics. And so the stories kind of change according to like what the culture is trying to teach to the listeners about marriage. Cause it is like one of the reasons why, like you said, kind of like this story is kind of like longer than the others is because you have these, these kind of long conversations between characters that are purely about focusing on what the author was trying to get at, which is like these qualities. Cause even when she's sitting down to dinner, like with the beast, like in the conversation where he's like, beauty, will you let me watch you dine? And she was like, you're my master. And I was like, kinky. And he's like, no, you're the mistress here. Tell me, don't you find me very ugly? It's like, like this conversation is taking a weird turn. And she's like, yes, I do. I don't know how to tell lies, but I do think that you are very kind. Then the monster's like, you are right. But in addition to being ugly, I also lack intelligence. (laughs) I know very well that I am nothing but a beast. You can't be a beast if you know that you lack intelligence. A fool never believes himself to be stupid. Go ahead and eat, beauty. And try not to get bored in this house, for everything here is yours. And I would be distressed if you were to become unhappy. You're very kind. I swear to you that I am completely pleased with your tender heart. (laughs) When I think of it, you no longer seem ugly to me. Oh, of course, I have a tender heart, but I'm still a monster. There's certainly many more men monstrous than you. 
I like you better even with your looks than men who hide false, corrupt, and ungrateful hearts before, behind charming manners. It's like, this is all like just this long conversation. Yeah. And the only point of it is so that like beauty can basically preach about like manners are very important and a tender heart. Yeah. Men are monstrous on the inside as well. Yeah. And, <laughs> And it's, yeah, it's all to serve this, like, point. And then when the sisters are complaining, it's all, like, the author just, like, clearly pointing at this thing that's, like, the important thing is the inside that counts. But also, here's a hot husband, because we don't want the ending to... (laughs) It would be so sad if the ending was, like, and then he stayed ugly, but she still loved him. It's like, oh, poo! Nobody likes that. Nobody likes that. Yeah, the part with the sisters was the thing that really hit home for me. And that and that dialogue that you just shared. There's the three parts. That little dialogue between her and the beast, the part with her sisters, and then where she like monologues for a really long time where she realized that she should marry the beast and she's about to go back to him. Because when you see the part with the sisters, you realize like, oh, they're the ones who married beasts. Because we ta- we've talked in the previous episodes about how this story type comes along because of the anxieties that come along with marrying someone that's pretty much a stranger, which was more common in the past than it is now, where you don't necessarily know the person that well before you get married to them, especially like the arist- you know aristocratic classes, who it seems like this book was intended for. So the two sisters ended up marrying people that they thought to be super desirable. One of them was like super good looking But it turns out that he was like so mean to her and he basically ignored her because he was just so self-centered. And the other one married someone who was like a man of wit, who's like so smart and funny and and everything. And that was something that she thought to be very desirable. So on the outside, they seemed like perfect matches, but then they actually get married to them and they realize that they're super unhappy because they're mistreated. These people are the real monsters even though they appear on the outside like they might not be. Whereas someone that may appear monstrous on the outside, when you get to know them, they're actually the one that is kind-hearted and all that. So it's just really interesting that I like about this that is sadly missing in, you know, like I think the the Disney version of having like the both sides of that coin. I think they kind of try to do that with Gaston, which makes yeah. sense. And it reminds me of something that you were telling me about your daughter saying about Gaston. What was that like conversation that you had with her? <laughs> Oh, yeah. She she was like, Mom, are beasts real? And I was like, oh, no, they're not real. She's like, what about Gaston's? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, those are real. And she's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like in the movie, he kind of takes that place where it's like he's all these great things on the outside, but you can tell that he's very self-centered, even though he's beautiful. But he's also in it for himself and not in it for the happiness of like his partner. So obviously he's not a good match, which I think does a good job and is actually more applicable in a modern context and also simpler, you know, in the same way that you simplify not having all these brothers and sisters have it just be Belle and her dad and whatever. Yeah. But there is something interesting about it, about that to me, like of seeing these other sisters marrying people who are monsters on the inside. Yeah. That it serves kind of like that that same purpose of like contrasting like yeah. the two and yeah. So what's also interesting to look at is exogamy and endogamy. So exogamy is marrying outside your group and endogamy is marrying inside your own group. 
And hopefully I'm always pronouncing words correctly. (laughs) (laughs) If not, I know people, especially like my friends will text me and be like, you're pronouncing everything wrong. But anyway, so a story about marrying outside your group, exogamy, is basically most of the ones that we've talked about where they're marrying somebody outside of like their known group. Uh-huh. And I think the only one that we have talked about that was endogamy marrying inside your own group was the girl who married a snake. Oh, uh, yeah. So the Indian story, it was a kinsman who wanted to like strengthen that relationship like with each other. And so they married inside their own group. And that was like another reason why she was like, well, I don't want to like be on like, I don't want to break the promise that my father made because like this is a... Um, a marriage inside our own group to like strengthen us as like a core group. Most of the ones that we've talked about are exogamy where you're marrying outside your group, where you're marrying somebody who is a big white bear or like being in the case of Cupid and Psyche being sacrificed to like a deity, a a, a monster. Well, they they thought they were having to give it to like some monster. monster. Yeah. Yeah. Or in like, Hassan of Basra, he was marrying somebody who was like a jinn. So like different species, he was a magical creature. Even like the frog princess, Ivan didn't realize, you know, that he was marrying like a human woman. He was, he thought he was marrying a frog. So like a lot of these stories are about that anxiety of marrying outside of your group. And those ones would be the ones that would cause kind of the most anxiety oh because it it is like okay we might have like different expectations we might have different family groups also if you're going if you're a woman especially if you're going to the man's family now Mm -hmm. you are in a really kind of you're kind of at the mercy of your new family yeah and if your mother-in-law's a troll she might eat you yeah Indeed. Which actually, yes. that's not one of the stories that we're talking about, but it's like <laughs> it, the same, I think the same anxieties are the reason that yeah. that exists. You know, it's like the danger from going to into a new situation where you are not in power, in control, and you're, like you said, at the mercy of this other family. Yeah. I mean, will you say like, oh, that's not this one because you're, you were referencing, referencing Sleeping, Sleeping Beauty. Beauty. But in East of the Sun, West of the Moon, he was ma- being forced oh, to marry true. outside of his group by marrying a troll. Yeah. Um, she wasn't trying to, his mother-in-law, and that story wasn't trying to eat him, but that's still like he, he was marrying into a group that was like less desirable. Yeah. And he didn't really want to do it, but it was being forced to. He would yeah. rather marry into a better group. East of the Sun and West of the Moon is so interesting because it was like a double whammy because yeah. she, the girl has to go and basically like she wasn't supposed to marry him, but she had to be taken off to, you know, you know it's kind of like metaphor for marrying anyway. And they did fall in love. You know, she was being taken off to have to live in the palace with the bear and then when the whole curse thing goes wrong, then he has to go and end up marrying, like he's supposed to marry a troll princess. So it's like it yeah. happens twice to different people in the same story, which is one of the things I really liked about that one, seeing it from both, like both sides. But yeah. and in both cases, like you're saying, it's like the exogamy, like to, from the perspective of the person who has to marry him. Like for the girl, she didn't know that the bear was actually like a human, but yeah. he did. So he was trying to kind of, in a way, like marry within his group yeah. by getting her to break the spell. 
and that to prevent him because he was so scared of having to do what she had to do and marry someone that he perceived to be less desirable and like beastly and monstrous in the, the, the troll princess. It's just like really interesting and complex. And that's one of the things I like about these when we're going back to these, you know, earlier recorded versions of them seeing like the complexity and how they are doing these, even in this like story where it is very obvious, the message that they're trying to convey. I think they do it in a very like intricate and, and like pretty complex is not the right word, but like kind of sophisticated way. Like it's built very intentionally and interestingly. Yeah. And I think, I think I'm glad that we talked about earlier about like how this story being given to like young girls as opposed to Charles Peralt's Bluebeard being given yeah. to like young children. And we were like, the moral doesn't make any sense. Like that one does. It seems a lot more like he just really liked that story and then had to like shove a moral on top of it. While this one, it was more like part of the story. Like, yeah. In it's, it. It's not like it, after the story, they're like, hey, by the way, in case you didn't catch it, this was what you were supposed to get from the story. Like in Charles Peralt, he literally wrote like two really yeah. dumb morals at the end. <laughs> This one, yeah. you don't need to write a moral because you understand. It's it's there. Yeah. And so another interesting thing is, it, like, marriage-related is the idea of marrying for money. Marrying for, like, riches and wealth and, mm-hmm. like, sometimes for you, like, a better status. In East of the Sun, West of the Moon, there's a cash component a money component where the white bear gives the girl's family like a bunch of wealth he says like you you will be as wealthy as you are poor now and so and in that story she wasn't a super willing person it took like a week or whatever for her to be like okay fine i'll do it for the family so she kind of like went more like begrudgingly and it took a while but so there's that money component and in Bluebeard, that was actually like a big component of yeah. Bluebeard. Because in the in the beginning of the story, like she's like, oh, wow, he's really rich. Because at first she didn't want to marry him because he's got that weird blue beard. And she's like, ah, uh, it's kind of a weirdo, kind of an outsider, different from us, not very fashionable. But he took her and like a bunch of her friends and relatives on this kind of like getaway trip to his place yeah. where all they did was like eat tons of good food, like just all of these different like entertainments and drinking and like just opulence, like all over the place, just total luxury. And she finally was like, you know what? It's okay that he's different because like he's got a load of money. And then when he turned out to be a murderer and her brothers killed that guy. She ended up with all of his money. Cause she was the only living wife that he had the only like heir. So she ended up with all that money. And then she ended up picking a guy that she liked that she didn't have to marry him for money. Cause she already had money. Yeah. So she could be secure because of like the finances of her dead husband. Yeah. And so like in this story too, in this Beauty and the Beast story, she goes from being not totally destitute. I mean, they still had a house and they were like surviving and stuff, but poorer than they used to be. Yeah. And there was able to be that flip where now she's completely surrounded by like luxury. Yeah, which is interesting too, because it's like, would there be 
a version of this story where the beast was not like obviously rich. Like, could he have shown kindness in a way? Like I think back to the, actually the, uh, the tiger King episode where he married a snake, which, well, no, he didn't marry snake. He married, Oh man, no, this is going to be complicated. No, 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 he did. He married a snake who's being chased by a mom. No, 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 you're right. The snake gave him a a dog. dog. (laughs) (laughs) But he didn't marry the dog until he knew that it was a human. Yes. He just wanted the dog as like a friend until he knew it was human. Oh, that's actually another really interesting thing that you accidentally brought up. So the, the stories that involve a handsome man marrying an ugly wife, there are a couple examples of them. Probably the best known one is uh, from Canterbury Tales. Uh-huh. Uh, the wife of Bath tells a story about a handsome man who marries a woman who's ugly during the day, but then she turns into a uh, beautiful woman at night. And he's being punished in this way because of like a rape that he committed earlier. But anyway, so there's this story of a handsome man who is forced to marry an ugly wife who later then transforms into a beautiful wife because of events that happen in that story in the Canterbury Tales. I'm like, it's not worth telling the whole story. But <laughs> but anyway, after the medieval period in Europe, those stories like disappear. Uh, there are like there aren't stories of a handsome man marrying an ugly wife. What you do start seeing is men who, if they marry an animal bride, it's either because like they've been tricked into it, but then once they find out their wife is hot <laughs> secretly, like if she takes off her frog skin and he's like, Oh no, she's secretly hot. Then he's super excited about being married to her. Or he finds out like in Hassan Basra that there's a beautiful woman inside the animal skin. So he already knows about like the hotness already. Mm-hmm. And so this story, so the idea of somebody having to marry somebody ugly After the medieval period, it's always the beautiful woman who has to marry an ugly man. Interesting. It's like, it's very fascinating that it's, it, the lesson of beauty being on the inside is only a lesson that's applicable when it's aimed at women. Yeah. Looking for a man. Yeah. Which I think my theory is it points to who is telling the stories of like, (laughs) and like who kind of like has the power that they're like, Hey ladies, don't be picky. (laughs) Like, like, yeah, your husband's probably gross and ugly, but you just have to deal with it because you're like, like beggars can't be choosers, I guess is kind of like, (laughs) yeah. Cause it's one of those things that's interesting too, is like in the end, they all end up being beautiful, whether they start off as ugly and they find them beautiful on the inside. Like you don't have like in this story we're talking about, it's like one, she doesn't fall in love with the beast and he stays a beast at the end. And also she doesn't fall in love with someone that doesn't have money. Like it's always kind of a given that the person will be attractive and rich. And I was thinking too, going back to the tiger King episode or the King who rides a tiger when he like saves a snake who then gives him a dog to be his companion in his like little shack that he lives on the like rocky side of the mountain where he's farming. She's actually a woman 
and turns into a woman during the day when he's gone and like makes him food and all this stuff. And he's very kind to this dog yeah, by sharing his food and doing everything that he can for the dog. And then when she reveals herself where he catches her in her true woman form, like falls in love with her and they get married. Like he's poor still. I mean, the story is yeah. also from his point of view, but it's just also like, and again, even though he's poor when it starts off, once he marries this woman, she has the magic powers that brings him all this wealth and this like great castle and stuff too. So it's like they do end up being rich and she ends up being beautiful, but it's like, they do kind of like, I guess the point is, you know, that's the closest thing that we kind of get to the, a woman falling in love with like a poor guy. Yeah. In kind of like an animal bride, animal husband, whatever story. Yeah. There is one story that I've we haven't read. Yeah. 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 Cause it's like, yeah, there's like tons. The one that I can think of like kind of right off the top of my head is the muskrat husband. And that is a story told by some first nation group that lives in Alaska. Okay. I'm not sure. But in that the woman, she like marries a guy who is a muskrat. She took his boot liners and she heated them by the fire to like dry them out. But then when he came back, he was like, oh no, like whatever made him able to like take off his like muskrat skin because she had dried them like by the fire, he had to turn back into a muskrat. And so she jumped back into the, like she jumped into the water to follow him and then she turned into a muskrat so that they could be together. Oh, it's kind um, of like a Shrek situation. Exactly. Cause I was like, I'm like the only story I can think of is Shrek. Where, like <laughs> the person like they're like, now we're both ogres. Yeah. And, and so like in like the muskrat husband, she turned into a muskrat at the end because and she had done something wrong. And so he was stuck being a muskrat. So then she turned she into a to muskrat join too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it very, it very rarely is a like, and the husband stayed ugly, but that's okay because we know that it's the inside that counts. Exactly. It's like, he's never just kind or like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. he's rich and he's handsome and he's kind. Yeah. It's like this. It seems like the story would stick even better. And the moral would stick even better. Like that is what is important. If he didn't have to be rich and he didn't have to be like handsome. If like they could fall in love on the fact that they really were friends and they really liked each other and they were kind to each other, but they were both of them ugly and lived in poverty, but were happy, you know, yeah. like, yeah. It's, it's just interesting that it's always like rich and handsome or rich and beautiful. Like it's always taken for a given. Yeah. When that's not how it is in life, you know? Yeah. Where it's like, yeah, sometimes you are going to have to marry somebody who is kind hearted and sweet and wonderful and they look normal. Yeah. <laughs> and you're not going to have like a ton of money and have everything that you want a whole library yeah. full of all the books that you ever want to read and a harpsichord. Oh, because I think getting back to something that maybe you almost like said earlier that you were like, how would the story have worked out if he didn't have a ton of money? Like, what if he was just like a beast in was, a cave? Yeah, a beast in a cave. And she learned to love him. But no, it usually comes along with this like, Lots of riches. So even though she was stuck with an ugly dude, at least she was surrounded by luxury. So it almost seems like the moral is 
that like if your husband is nice and super rich, it doesn't matter how ugly he is. Yeah. It's like, and maybe you could chalk it up to like simplicity. Like you want to really focus on that aspect of him being kind. Yeah. Versus, you know, because like you're comparing him to like the the sisters were never going to marry anyone that was not rich and not of high station. So you need to keep that playing field level so you could show the difference between them. But it's like, I still think it would be a much stronger moral. And maybe it's just, again, modern sensibilities that makes me think that. But it's yeah. like that if you really want to say that it's what's on the inside that counts, that the important thing to look for is that they be kind. Like, don't also make them. So in the defense of the story, too, she did still agree to marry him when he was a beast. Yes. So it wasn't yeah. that thing. That was the thing that she got over. But he was still rich. Like, have him be a beast in a cave. And then once she agrees to marry him, well, even then, it's like, oh, the reward is like they have to be handsome and beautiful and rich. But it's like the cave could have transformed into like a beautiful castle. Yeah. And then they live happy ever after to, uh, you know, amplify the fact that when you do this thing, you will be you're rewarded. rewarded. And you're, and you're, and you're, you know, like riches are metaphorical as far as like happy and you have a blessed life. And the beauty is also metaphorical in the sense that she talked about when she saw how kind he was, she scarcely like even saw his ugliness anymore. You know, it's kind of like, okay, I can still accept that if you can take as the lesson, it's like, you know, it's all a metaphor, which obviously it is because it's a woman marrying a magical beast, but (laughs) yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting. I don't know. It is. I think also, I think before, like we kind of like wrap up what's been kind of like a little bit of a series. I do want to point out that all of these relationships are so heteronormative. Like that's true. Yeah. All of these stories, very heteronormative, like, and it is like hard for anybody who like falls outside of that to like outside of just the like, like, woman and man like marriage Mm -hmm. it's hard to see yourself like inside of like fairy tales and so i think that at least like deserves a mention yeah there are some books that i've been wanting to like look into that kind of go deeper into talking about where there are like hints of like homosexual relationships that happen inside of fairy tales. Uh And so I'm excited to kind of like look into the research that's been done on that so that we can talk a little bit about that, like on the podcast. Yeah. Because yeah, most fairy tales are just going to be that like heteronormative, like, and a beautiful woman fell in love with a beautiful man, like story, like, like trope, because that's kind of like what, you know, everybody thought was like, this is what normal is for, um, yeah, pretty much like all the written down stories. Also, yeah. the thing that's interesting too is like, like you said, in the, in the text as they exist in these like older stories, very heteronormative, but there's lots of, like, again, in the same way that there's tons of different adaptations where people are continuing the storytelling tradition by taking these stories and then retelling them in their own way. I'm aware of situations where they have done, you know, spins where they've had it be like two princesses or whatever, you know, like where they have addressed that, taking the tropes and trying to adapt them to fit a story. So people with different experiences can see themselves in them, which is interesting. It's one of the things that we've talked about all the time about what's great about fairy tales is that they belong to people. And when you're telling the story, it belongs to you. So you can make it be what you want it to be. So if you want to see 
yourself in this story, you can tell it in a way that makes it relevant to you. Like I can tell this story from now on and the beast can be both ugly and poor. Even at the end. Even at the end. Because <laughs> that they is, just, they t- they just that's have more relevant sweet. to my life. <laughs> I'm ugly, I'm poor, but still my wife recognized the kindness that I could ex- you know, express towards her and married me anyway. And guess what? And, we're still ugly and poor, but we're in love and happy. Yeah. And my husband is, you know, rich and handsome, but we're miserable. So, <laughs> And I said, I actually said we're ugly and poor, but I mean, I'm ugly and poor. My wife is very beautiful. <sighs> so I hope that this journey has been worth it for everybody that's been listening. We really wanted to show how these stories, you know, kind of merged together, how they came from different places and kind of influenced each other, played off of each other, and then were influenced by the cultures where they were. We wanted to show how they all kind of tied back to what people thought about marriage at the time and the places where they were like created as stories. It's been really great for me. And I know I've just been like, patiently going along with it every time you're like, we're going to do a Beating the Beast episode for Valentine's Day. I was like, that's great. And then every time you're like, oh, I want to talk about this story first and this story first. I was okay with it because, again, I am just show up and try to make jokes when I can. And I'm here to learn, which was what I did. Like, I got exposed to a bunch of stories that I'd never heard before, which exposed me to different cultures that I didn't know a lot about before. And then it also made going back and reading this story that I was very familiar with, you know, from the Disney version or whatever. Yeah. It made it that much more enriching to me to read and more fun for me to read when I could go through and for myself see all these different things that we've talked about. So, like, I totally do get why you built it up in this way and why this, like, series I think is going to be a really good foundation for things going forward. I think we're going to be tying things back to this all the time, just like in how we were tying so many stories, even ones outside of the episodes that were explicitly built up to this episode. Yeah. We talked about them in so many things. So it's like, if you haven't listened to all of the episodes of the Fairy Taylor's podcast to this point, you, you might be missing some of the references that I've made because there is just so much into it. And I think a lot of it comes with something you brought up at the very beginning of this episode where it was these two stories from different cultures that kind of came and were exposed to people at the same time that bump them into each other. So you're taking these stories that have spread out throughout different cultures already and bringing them together, which then get meshed into the cultures of the places where they're being told. So there's so much of this like stealing of elements that goes on and the tropes get spread out through all the different tales in tons of different places, whether they be coming from this story or the stories that became this story. That's it's super reassuring to hear you say that, 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 you learned a lot and that it did do what I was like hoping that it would do of like laying a foundation so that this story, when it was told felt like, Oh yeah, I see this and I see this and I see this because that's really like what I wanted, like from people to see that, like, cause that's what blows my mind. Like as a person who is super into fairy tales and I want to know their history, I want to know where they came from, why they got formed this story, why it got me so excited, why I wanted to like share so much information (laughs) leading up to this was because like when I 
see research like this, or I learn something like this, like it just like it explodes my brain <laughs> to think about just how all of these things kind of came together to create a story, how a story in India and a story in Greece just like traveled all over the place and met each other at a point in history and then turned into something. And I just get so excited and nerded out, like learning the history <laughs> of like where it came from and then seeing just all of those elements like bleed together so that it is like a story that you're already been exposed to through like lots of different media, but definitely like Disney movie, like Beauty and the Beast. You think that you already are familiar with the story, but then when you learn all of this like extra stuff, it suddenly the story feels like a super rich part of cultural history. And I hope that's what other people got out of it too. I hope that listeners are thinking like, whoa, who knew that all this cultural history was embedded inside of this story? Thank you for listening to The Fairy Tellers. If you are enjoying what we're doing, please support us by leaving us a review or share us with your friends. Special thanks to Andrew Forey for our music and Clarice Inch for our artwork. If you are a dreamer, come in. If you are a dreamer, a wisher, a liar, a hoper, a prayer, a magic bean buyer. If you're a pretender, come sit by my fire, for we have some flax golden tails to spin. Come in, come in. Invitation by Shel Silverstein. But my sisters have finally like accepted to me. <clears throat> my sisters have finally accepted to me. Good gosh, what's going on? I don't know why I want to say accepted to me. Accepted to me. <laughs> accepted they to me. They bindedly did a slap to the <laughs> way. It's like, uh, what's happening to your mouth? Uh, Whoa, your eyes shot out of your head, just like in the cartoon when you did that. <laughs> just kidding, nobody can see, so I had to narrate what your eyeballs... <laughs> like, oh, they shot... A foot out of his head and then sucked back in when he did the noise. That's for real because I said so. <laughs>